Welcome back to Warrior's Den. This is episode 103. It is a blog post series episode on a series I wrote called The Nervous System Reflexes and Krav Maga. But first, this episode is brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions since 2013. If you like the content we are providing, you can support us in many ways. You can, of course, train with us in person. Go to urbantacticscam.com and sign up for a free trial class if you're in the Metro Vancouver area. You can, of course, also sign up for a Canadian Firearm Safety Course or Canadian Restricted Firearm Safety Course to get your Canadian Firearms License if you would like to get firearms in Canada. You can also sign up at urbantacticscam.com for that. A free way you can support us is, of course, following us on Instagram, Urban Tactics Krav Maga, Twitter, Urban Tactics KM, and Facebook, Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Had to think about it. You can, of course, go to our blog, utkmblog.com. That's where we post these blog posts, among other things. And, of course, if you're interested in submitting something, you can uh, get free membership for three months, up to three months if we publish something you've submitted to us which you can submit at info at urbantacticscanada.com to free, three-month free to utkmu.com, which is where you can see the curriculum as we teach it at Urban Tactics KM. Uh, novice beginner packages eventually, I keep promising, eventually advanced stuff will be up there. I need to flesh it out a little bit. Um, you can, of course, just simply donate. If you want to go back to that blog, utkmblog.com, you can donate under the support us tab so many ways you can support the content we are providing so to enhance your Krav Maga journey so that is it I believe I'm getting faster so this series has four parts to it the nervous system reflexes Krav Maga part one action versus reaction and where is part two sorry I got a bunch of tabs part two training your reflexes and conscious decision-making Part three is withdrawing from stimulus, and part four is moving towards stimulus. So that is this episode. Enjoy. Krav Maga is not just a self-defense system. It is a way of life. Warriors Den is a podcast for Kravists, fighters, martial artists, warriors, politicians, and general citizens. Consider this. The society that separates scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. Lucididi. Your host, Jonathan Fader, talks to guests in an open and uncensored format about their fights, their philosophies, and their lives. No topic is taboo, and the conversation may start in one place and end in another. As the quote suggests, you cannot separate the warrior from the politics and the world around them, as a true warrior must be a student in all forms of art and science. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. Warrior's Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions. Okay, so before we get into this, I just want to say I am not a neuroscientist, I am not a biologist, I am not any of those things uh, to give me some kind of official expertise on this. Uh, if you want 
the best podcast out there for how the brain works, human optimization, etc. It is the Huberman Lab from Andrew Huberman. They have episodes on all sorts of uh, human uh, uh, behavioral stuff from, you know, how the neurons work to fat loss and improving focus and eating disorders and controlling pain, all from a neurological thing. So if you really want to learn how your body works, I recommend uh, from like just an optimal optimization, like practical application, how do I fix these problems and how do I train and from a neurological perspective the Huberman lab he's a uh, Stanford professor among other things he's one of the best podcasts out there for that kind of stuff I'm sure there's tons of other ones on that topic as well Um, but since I'm sort of diving into a little bit about neurons in this series and how your brain works and in relation to self-defense Krav Maga uh, I thought I would give you a better resource than me so there's that now, here is the first of the blog. Oh, I know. Before I give you the first one, actually, what I'm going to do is put an audio of going through the basics of action versus reaction, which is one of the basic Kramaga principles that I teach. So have a listen. Action versus reaction. The stages of mental processing. Action, preemptive versus reactive reaction when it comes to human versus human situations action is always faster than reaction human brains are all made up of the same stuff and operate in relatively similar fashion we all have neurons and our brains generally function with the same brain chemistry and processes most people will have approximately the same action reaction potential with regards to these response times. While there are, of course, exceptions, as is in the case of extreme athletes, most people will fall within similar parameters. Below, the action versus reaction concept is broken down into four basic steps to processing information for the purpose of self-defense. The names given may be similar to the standard process models, but are simplified for the purposes of this self-defense model. 1. Perceive. This is the initial identification of an attack or action, the oh-shit moment when you identify an imminent threat. 2. Analyze. At this point, your brain examines the threat in the context of your situation to determine what to do. The brain will consider the speed and trajectory of the threat, his or her shape or size, and the direction of escape routes and numerous other identifiers. 3. Formulate. Now you do. You are consciously thinking about what to do and searching your memory for the appropriate response. Do you run? Do you fight? Do you freeze? 4. Action. Finally, based on your perception and analysis, you now act on your plan. Both the attacker and the defender are going through these same stages, which can take approximately 0.25 seconds to move through all four. However, in a life or death situation, this can seem like an eternity. If you fail to recognize and act in response, you now find yourself relegated to a reactive action rather than a preemptive action. You are now playing a game of catch-up. Your attacker may be at stage 4 with a punch action while you are still at stage 2, analyze, or 3, formulate. If you fail to give yourself enough space or cannot counter-react fast enough, that punch will now hit you. Your goal is always to engage in an aggressive fashion 
should you find yourself in a mental color code red so that you are constantly resetting your attacker's mental process back to one perceive or two analyze this can be done by off-balancing causing pain or resetting their mental process through disruption see off-balance cause pain reset because of this model and how the brain processes information action is always faster than reaction the four stages of self-defense as taught by utkm must keep this process in mind and approach violence in the appropriate order so that a defender always has the option to engage with preemptive action rather than reactive action this is a model similar to the american oodle loop oodle model of observe orient decide act Okay, confused yet? So that's just a simple breakdown. Action is generally faster than reaction. There's a reason there's a saying that the firstest with the mostest is the bestest. As in, the, if, if I'm on the offense, I don't hesitate, I go. And I hope to impose my will on the other person because it's faster than waiting to make the decision where I can get psyched out or play uh, mental games. And if I'm on the defense and realize, shit, I need to strike first, that's reason that our four stages of self-defense is avoid, uh, de-escalate, strike first, and then react last, because it is simply faster. And the neurons take, you know, something like 0 0.025 seconds or 0 0.025 seconds um, to sort of make that decision-making process. So uh, no matter how fast your muscle reaction time and your nervous system reaction time, there is a hard sort of limit, give or take, on how fast that decision could actually be made in the human body. So the more you train, et cetera, and we'll get into it, the, the higher your skill level, the better in shape you are, the faster you can act, regardless of whether you're acting first or reacting. If that makes sense. It should by the end of this podcast. And here is part one, action versus reaction in more depth. The Nervous System, Reflexes, and Krav Maga, Part 1, Action versus Reaction. This is the first part in another series about connecting the system of Krav Maga to your nervous system and day-to-day -day life, specifically your nervous system and your reactions. See previous series, Awareness Color Code, The Nervous System and Mental Health. Acting preemptively to anticipate a stimulus or rather acting faster than the stimulus can affect you versus reacting to a stimulus will give you different results. This is due to the fact that there is a thing called time. Time is essentially the measurement of particles from one point to another due to the fact that energy has made them move in one direction or another. But don't worry, this isn't going to be some theoretical time-space physics lessons as who am I kidding, like most others, I barely understand such things. Instead, it will be a breakdown of how action is almost always faster than reaction, at least when it comes to us humans, which means it is an important thing to understand in Kramaga and overall self-defense. So how does action versus reaction work in us humans? It all starts with electrical signals in our brains generated by our neurons. Our neurons, brains, conscious and subconscious minds interpret some type of data from our various senses, eyesight, hearing, proprioception, etc., based on whatever stimulus there is in front of us. This could be for anything from a knife-wielding maniac to your douche roommate jumping out at the dark to scare you for the newest YouTube video. Regardless of what the stimulus is, 
If it is a threat to your well-being, physical or otherwise, you must interpret the stimulus rapidly to make a correct decision. There are many factors that contribute to how fast you can actually react, but let's stick to your brain, your body, your training experience, post two, and how that combines with some basic natural reactions covered in post three and four. But to understand it all, let's go back to your brain and those magical little things called neurons and how they work with your body and reaction times. Your brain. There are several models to explain this process so you can better understand it, and as always, we can sum them up in acronyms. Yay! The two acronyms I will look at are PAFA and OODA, the famous OODA loop. PAFA stands for Perceive, Analyze, Formulate, Action. This is the model that I use at UTKM as it was the first introduced to me for the purposes of self-defense. OODA, on the other hand, stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. They employ different verbs, but they are at the same steps and mean exactly the same thing. I am referencing both in case you encounter one versus the other in your training. It really is a dick swinging contest as to which is best. Let's break down, the down with simple examples to help you understand the process that is going through your brain before you either act preemptively or act reactively. PAFA 1. Perceive. There is a thing there. 2. Analyze. What is that thing? Is it going to eat me? Should I run? Should I fight? 3. Formulate. Come up with a plan for what is best response. Fight, flight, fight, or freeze. 4. Action. Execute plan. Uda. 1. Observe. There is a thing there. 2. Orient. What is that thing? Is it going to eat me? Should I run? Should I fight? 3. Decide. Come up with a plan for what is best response. Fight, flight, or freeze. 4. Act. Execute plan. That is what order in which you, our decision-making process operates and, as a general rule, how fast you can react. While it is slightly different for every person, your brain takes about 0.25 seconds to accomplish steps 1 through 3, and then depending on many factors, it can take less than a second or many seconds, too many, to actually begin to act. Before I get into what that actually means for self-defense, Let's break down what each stage is a little further. Stage 1. Is your senses alerting you? Whether it be sight, sound, that tingly feeling, or voodoo magic that tells you, hey idiot, there's a thing there. It might be the face of a velociraptor in the long grass, the classic knife-wielding maniac, or that ex who ruined your life. Regardless, at this stage, all you are aware of is that it is a thing but you are not quite sure what it is or if it is dangerous. As far as you are concerned, in this brief window of time, there is simply something there and you really are not quite sure about its meaning or intentions. Stage 2. Your neurons essentially do a cross-reference of everything it knows of in order to tell you what that thing is. Now you know for sure if it is a velociraptor, a knife-wielding maniac, or that X you never wanted to see again. Regardless of what the thing was, you have not fully decided what to do yet, probably because you are quite possibly shocked that it is in fact the ex who ruined your life, and you are, at least for a moment, trying to avoid panic, all while wishing it would be better. If it was the extinct dinosaur or a knife-wielding maniac, in your mind, both are preferable. Stage 3. 
This is where, hopefully, you have not actually panicked and your brain and neurons again cross-reference this database to determine the best course of action. The appropriate response for your brain is to activate its fight-or-flight mechanism, though with our more modern sapient brains, conversation is technically an option to avoid a drastic fight-or-flight response. I mean, seeing that X is traumatic enough, getting a text from them afterwards saying, hey, I saw you running away, why were you such a little bitch, is just humiliating. Nonetheless, this step is all about making a decision. You have little time until you see you. You take a breath, realize that fighting is not appropriate, and that conversation is out of the question. So you take a calmer version of flight. You decide to run slowly enough that it won't draw attention to you. Stage 4. You execute your clever plan. Luckily, there are enough people around to cover your exit as you shuffle away, sneaking behind a corner while keeping a close eye on your nemesis to be sure that they didn't see you. You watch them walk past, and you sigh with relief, reminding yourself to calm your nervous system back down from high-strung red to a cool yellow. Regardless of whether you are on the defense or the offense, in any given situation, remember that for both persons involved, Moving from the first stage, identifying the stimulus as a thing worthy of paying attention, to the third stage, making a plan, both parties are going through the same neurological process in about 0.25 seconds. It's the fourth stage that can make all the difference, as humans' reactions times can vary wildly. If you act sooner in the fourth stage, then you perceive the threat, that the threat may not even have gathered enough information to actually act on any plan to harm you. Remember the saying, the hand is quicker than the eye. And that is because processing visual data can be quite taxing on your brain. So much so that your brain often fills in the blank in the form of educated guess based on previous data and experience. This is actually a big part of the reason eyewitness accounts are so unreliable. Now that you have a basic idea of what your brain is doing, let's connect it to the body. Your body. There are many factors that can affect how fast you go from stage 3 to 4, including genetics, experience, training, and of course, the state of your body. Once your brain has decided what to do, it needs to send electrical signals to your muscles and get you to start acting. This is assuming you haven't gone code black and cannot act, instead freezing in place or worse, passing out. Regardless of what you decide to do, if you are running or fighting, your body should be in code red, which required the activation of various body parts and systems to do specific things to enhance your reaction. Let's just keep it simple to a few things, your eyes, lungs, and muscles. More detailed biological specifics can be found here, click link, or in a basic breakdown of fight, flight, or freeze, click here. Eyes. Whether it is because of an adrenaline surge from the fight-or-flight mechanism, pharmaceuticals you are on, prescribed or otherwise, or street drugs, someone is partaking in, there are many factors that can affect whether your pupils are dilated or constricted. To let more light in. Depending on how much light is coming into your eyes, or whether or not a drug is changing how fast your brain can process the visual stimulus, it will affect how fast you can move from stage 1 into stage 4. If it is due to adrenaline rush, your eyes should dilate, allowing more light in to allow a clearer and hypothetical, quicker response to your visual information. Con contrast that with certain drugs that may cause the constricting of the pupil, which allow less light and, hypothetically, a slower response time due to a block of information that is less clear than you'd like it to be. 
There is also a natural skill component, as some people are able to process visual cues faster than others, which will, in turn, affect how the rest of the body reacts to a perceived threat. Keep in mind that if you can't see the threat at all, you won't know there's a problem, and your body won't know to kick into action as it is supposed to. If this is the case, you better be hoping the threat is your ex and not a velociraptor. Lungs. Assuming there is nothing seriously wrong with your lungs, if the flight or flight mechanism is kicking in, it should be relaxing your airways so that you can more efficient in your breathing. This is, of course, assuming you are in reasonable enough shape to be able to breathe effectively when under duress. If you have breathing problems, asthma for example, then you are forced to breathe fast enough, especially under duress, this can increase your stress level to the point where breathing is so difficult, your body starts to panic and potentially sends you into code black. Again, assuming you have no issues, the stronger, in better shape, your cardiovascular system is, the longer you'll be able to sustain the increased activity required to deal with the threat. Additionally, if your adrenaline rush requires you to push past more than 30 seconds, you may face a hard adrenaline dump. This means all of the speed you had temporarily is now gone and everything is more labored. If your cardiovascular system is strong, it will allow you to compensate for this dump, allowing you to keep a reasonable response time. Of course, if you smoke or are just completely out of shape or, or obese, then along with the adrenaline dump, your lungs will already be working overtime, most likely causing your response time to fall to less than effective responses. This means that you can no longer run from that knife-wielding maniac and will be forced to fight, which is now considerably more difficult for several reasons. Of course, if this is the X we discussed earlier, then unfortunately you're going to have to talk to them while super out of breath, and this time it isn't because they took your breath away. Muscles. There are a couple of factors governing how muscles can increase your reaction speed. The most obvious is, once again, tied to the fight-or-flight mechanism, as the rush of endorphins, including adrenaline, speed up your muscle reaction time, as well as potentially increasing your strength. This gives you faster reaction times overall, at least until that dump happens. This time, from the stimulus to stage 4 is very short. Though it may vary from person to person, it could be a matter of seconds to minutes until you crash into the dump, which inevitably slows down your muscles. This is a big part of the reason pure self-defense is meant to be 10 to 30 seconds of fight so that the threat is done or you are cleared of it prior to the dump, which is when combative training and traditional sense fighting is then needed. Another factor which can affect the reaction speed is fast twitch versus slow twitch muscles, or type 1 and type 2. Though you can train your muscles to have faster reaction time, there is a genetic component which often means some people have more of one type of muscle than the other. Fast twitch muscles are associated with explosive energy or quick energy use, which translates into faster reaction times. If you are naturally gifted, you will inevitably f be faster, developing quicker response times regarding, regardless of your training. This is really the luck of the draw and is why some people excel in certain sports over others. With regards to sprinting, quickly getting away, or explosive punches and tackles, fast twitch muscles are an asset. Combine more fast twitch muscles with a strong cardiovascular system and you will find it easier to quickly make decisions and execute stage 4 of either model. For the rest of us, who have mostly slow twitch muscles, including myself, we have to compensate, compensate with extensive training and a higher skill floor. What this all means, at, l at last 
sentence suggests a large percentage of humanity has a more slow twitch muscles, which are better for endurance or longer tasks, which means we must make up for our lack of fast twitch muscles and natural athletic ability with training. This challenge will be covered in the next post. For now, you have to get your head around your reality. Do you know what kind of reaction times you have? If not, you can always find out as there are many products and games on the market that can let you test your reaction times. Of course, remember that training for a specific task will increase your reaction time for that specific task and not necessarily every task. Something you do need to know, however, is how do your mind and body react to threats? Do you always choose flight or is it always fight? Success in self-defense means you are actually able to do both and make decisions as consciously as you can based on the more than primal response to the stimulus. Though this is of course more complicated than presented here. But for now, it's a good start. Written by Jonathan Fader. For training online, visit www.utkmu.com. If you're in the Metro Vancouver area, come learn with us in person. Sign up at www.urbantacticskm.com. Click the support link to support this blog. Okay, so there's that first part. Now the two acronyms used were PAFA, Perceive, Analyze, Formulate, and Action, which I was originally taught by Nir Maman, and then the OODA loop, which is commonly used in uh, American self-defense circles. Now OODA loop sounds cooler to say. Um, I personally like the actual breakdown of the, uh, the PAFA one uh, better personally but that's me and I'm biased because it's the first one I learned so that's how us humans operate on such things regarding our first preference so there is that I wanted to expand a little bit on some of the things that I linked to in that and uh, just give you some better context uh, regarding how your body works so let's just break down stimulus now this is from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, which is my least favorite dictionary because they're super woke and constantly redefining words for uh, political gains or purposes. However, stimulus is a word that I don't think has been changed. That was just some extra context there. So stimulus, noun. Essential meaning of stimulus, one, something that causes something else to happen, develop, or become more active, or two, something that causes a change or reaction. Basically, a stimulus is given and it causes a reaction, essentially. A light is given, you blink or close your eyes. The stimulus is the light, you get a response. Now, uh, understanding stimulus and response mechanisms actually can help you in your training with pets or, yes, even children if you don't be abusive about it. Uh, I'll go over two examples of conditioning using stimulus and uh, reward uh, mechanism, you know, and that you know if you're in psychology you would have learned about these and I'm just bringing it up to go over them quickly so that you um, can understand how you can sort of hack your training methodology yes this may even work for you of course if you know what's happening it doesn't always work so there's two types of general uh, conditioning to get a desired behavior which can help your training or if you're training somebody else if you know how to uh, operate with these there's two types, classical and operant conditioning, and I'll just go through these quickly. So verywellmind.com is where I'm getting from. Again, links in the show notes. What is classical conditioning? A step-by-step -step guide, how can classical conditioning really works? 
Classical conditioning is a type of learning that had a major influence on the school of thought of psychology known as behaviorism, discovered by Russian psychologist Ivan Pavlov, po Pavlov's dog, if you know. Classical conditioning is a learning process that occurred through association between an environmental stimulus and a naturally occurring stimulus. It has before conditioning, unconditional stimulus. There's a dog and some food, and the neutral stimulus is a whistle, no response. So basically, you whistle, nothing happens. Then, during conditioning, you give the food and a whistle. And then, after conditioning, you whistle, and then they respond by salivating. That's the classic Pavlovian dog situation. There's a nice little picture here. So, classical conditioning basic. Although classical conditioning was not discovered by a psychologist at all, it was a tremendous influence over the school of thought in psychology known as behaviorism. Behaviorism is based on the assumption that all learning occurs through interaction with the environment, and the environment shapes behavior. Of course, expanding on that nature-nurture, it's a little bit of both. There are some genetic components, but yes, you can alter people's behavior through training. Classical conditioning, conditioning involves placing a neutral signal before the naturally occurring reflex in Pavlov's classic experiment with dogs, the neutral signal was the sound of a tone, and the naturally occurring reflex was salivating in response to food. By associating the neutral stimulus with the environment stimulus food, the sound of the tone alone could produce the salivation process. There's a little video. How classical conditioning works. In order to understand how more about how classical conditioning works, it is important to become familiar with the principles of the process. Classical conditioning involves forming an association between two stimulus regard, resulting in a learned response. There are three basic phases of the process. Phase 1. Before conditioning. The first part of classical conditioning process requires a naturally occurring stimulus that will automatically elicit a response. Salivating in response to the smell of food is a good example of a natural occurring stimulus. During this phase of the process, the unconditioned stimulus results in the unconditioned response. For example, presenting food, naturally automated, triggers the salivation response. At this point, there are a natural stimulus that produces no effect yet. Neutral stimulus, sorry. It is int until neutral stimulus is paired with the unconditioned stimulus that it will come to evoke a response. Let's take a closer look at two critical components of this phase, classical conditioning. The unconditioned stimulus is one that unconditionally, naturally, and automatically triggers a response for example, when you smell one of your favorite foods, you may immediately feel hung very hungry in this example. A smell of food is unconditioned stimulus. The unconditioned response is the unlearned response that occurs naturally in response to unconditioned stimulus. In our example, the feeling of hunger in response to the smell of food is unconditioned response. In the before conditioning phase, an unconditioned stimulus is paired with an unconditional response. A neutral stimulus is then introduced. Phase 2. During conditioning. During the second phase of classical conditioning process, the previous neutral stimulus is repeatedly paired with the unconditioned stimulus as a result of this pairing. An association between the previous neutral stimulus and the unconditional stimulus is formed. At this point, the once neutral stimulus becomes known as conditioned stimulus. The subject has now been conditioned to respond to the stimulus. The conditioned stimulus is a previously neutral stimulus. That would be the whistle, by the way after becoming associated with the unconditional stimulus, eventually comes to trigger a conditioned response. In our early example, suppose that when you smelled your favorite food, you also heard the sound of a whistle. 
While the whistle is unrelated to the smell of the food, if the sound of the whistle was paired multiple times with the smell, the whistle sound would eventually trigger the conditioned response. In this case, the sound of a whistle is that conditioned stimulus. Phase 3, after conditioning, once the association has been made between the unconditioned uh, stimulus and the conditioned stimulus, presenting the conditioned stimulus alone will evoke a response even without the unconditioned stimulus. The result response is known as conditioned response. The conditioned response is the learned response to the previous neutral stimulus. In our example, the conditioned response would be feeling hungry when you heard the sound of the whistle. Key principles. Behaviorists have described a number of different phenomena associated with classical conditioning. Some of these elements involve the initial establishment of the response, while the others describe the disappearance of the response. These elements are important in understanding classical conditioning process. Let's take a closer look at five key principles of classical conditioning. Acquisition. Acquisition is the initial stage of learning when a response is first established and gradually strengthened. During the acquisition phase of classical conditioning, a neutral stimulus is repeatedly paired with an unconditional stimulus. As you may recall, an unconditional stimulus is something that naturally and automatically triggers a response with any learning after an association is made. The subject will begin to emit behavior in response to a previous neutral stimulus, which is now known as a conditioned stimulus. It is at this point that we can say that the response has been acquired. For example, imagine that you are conditioning a dog to salivate in response to the sound of a bell, Pavlov's dog. You repeatedly pair the presenta presentation of food with the sound of a bell. You can say that the response has been acquired as soon as the dog begins to salivate in response to the bell tone. Once the response has been established, you can gradually reinforce the salivation response to make sure the behavior is well learned. Extinction. Extinction is when the occurrence of a conditional response decreases or disappearing in classical conditioning. This happens when a conditioned stimulus is no longer paired with an unconditional stimulus. For example, the smell of food, the unconditional stimulus, has been paired with the sound of a whistle. The conditioned stimulus, it would eventually come to evoke the conditioned response of hunger. However, if the unconditioned stimulus, the smell of food, were no longer paired with the conditioned stimulus, the whistle, eventually the conditioned response hunger would disappear. Spontaneous recovery. Spontaneous... Uh, said that again. Sometimes a learned response can suddenly reemerge after a period of extinction. Spontaneous recovery is the reappearance of conditioned response after the rest period or period of lesson, lesson response. For example, imagine that after training a dog to salivate to the sound of a bell, you stop reinforcing the behavior and the response eventually becomes extinct. After a rest period of which the conditioned stimulus is not present, you suddenly ring a bell and the animal spontaneously recovers the previously learned response. If the conditioned stimulus and unconditioned stimulus are no longer associated, extinction will occur very rapidly after a spontaneous recovery. Stimulus generalization. Stimulus generalization is the tendency for the conditioned stimulus to evoke similar response after the response has been conditioned. For example, if a dog has been conditioned to salivate at the sound of a bell, the animal may also exhibit the same response to stimulus that are similar to conditioned stimulus. In John B. Watson's famous Little Albert experiment, for example, a small child was conditioned to fear a white rat. The child demonstrates stimulus generalization by also exhibiting fear in a response 
to other fuzzy white objects, including stuffed toys at Watson's own hair. By the way, they, you're not allowed to do those kind of experiments anymore. Stimulus discrimination. Discrimination is the ability to differentiate between a conditional stimulus and other stimulus that have not been paired with an unconditioned stimulus. For example, if a bell tone were a conditioned stimulus, discrimination would involve being able to tell the difference between the bell tone and other similar sounds. Because the subject is able to distinguish between the stimulus, they will only respond when the conditioned stimulus is presented. Classical conditioning examples. It can be very helpful to look at a few examples of how the classical conditioning process operates, both in experiment and real-world settings. Fear response. John B. Watson's experiment with Little Albert is a perfect example of the fear response. The child initially showed no fear of a white rat, but after the rat was paired with repeated loud, sound, scary sound, the child would cry when the rat was present. The child's fear also generalized to other fuzzy white objects. Prior to the conditioning, the white rat was neutral stimulus. The unconditioned stimulus was the loud, changing sounds, and the unconditional response was the fear response created by the noise. By repeatedly pairing the rat with unconditional stimulus, the white rat, now conditioned stimulus, came to evoke the fear response, now the conditioned response. The experiment illustrates how phobias can form through classical conditioning in many cases, a single pairing of a neutral stimulus, a dog for example, and frightening experience being bitten by the dog can lead to lasting phobia, being afraid. Taste aversions, another example of classical conditioning, can be seen in development of conditioned taste. Researchers John Garcia and Bob Colling first noticed that phenomenon when they observed how rats that had been exposed to nausea-causing radiation developed an aversion to flavored water after the radiation and the water were presented together. In example, the radiation represents the unconditional stimulus, and the nausea represents the unconditional response. After the pairing of the two, the flavored water is conditioned stimulus, while the nausea that formed when exposed to the water alone is the conditioned response. Later res research demonstrated that such classically conditioned aversions could be produced through a single pairing of conditioned stimulus and the unconditional stimulus. Researchers also found that such aversion can develop if the conditioned stimulus, the taste of food, is presented several hours before the unconditional stimulus. Why do such associations develop so quickly? Obviously, forming such associations can have survival benefits for the organisms. If an animal eats something that makes it ill, it needs to avoid eating the same food in the future to avoid sickness or even death. This is a great example of what is known as biological preparedness. Some associations form more readily because they aid in survival. In one famous field study, researchers injected sheep carcasses with a poison that would make coyotes sick but not kill them. The goal was to help sheep ranchers reduce the number of sheep lost to coyote killings. Not, not only did the experiment work by lowering the number of sheep killed, it also caused some of the coyotes to develop such a strong aversion to sheep, they would actually run away at the scent or sight of sheep. It worked from very well. In reality, people do not respond exactly like Pavlov's dogs, which are more complicated, by the way. There are, however, numerous real-world applications for classical conditionings. For example, many dog trainers use classical conditioning techniques to help people train their pets. These techniques are also very useful for helping people cope with phobias or anxiety problems. 
Therapists might, for example, repeatedly pair something that provides anxiety with relation relaxation techniques in order to create an association. Teachers are also able to apply classical conditioning in a class to create a positive classroom environment to help students overcome anxiety, fear, pairing anxiety, provoking situations such as performing front group with pleasant surroundings help students learn new associations instead of feeling anxious and tense in the situations. The child will learn, relax, and calm. So that is from VeryWellMind.com by Kendra Cherry, medically reviewed by Stephen Gans, MD. So that is um, classical conditioning. And again, what does this have to do with action versus reaction? It's related to stimulus. And this all comes to do with training. As you heard at the end, it has to do with, it can be used for phobias. So I want you to just hit pause and think about how this applies to your training and Krav Maga in specific as well as how it might train, how to develop training program for your action, reaction, or muscle memory. Of course, if you know exactly what's going on, sometimes it can undo it. But if you don't, or you're a willing participant, it can certainly help. So just hit pause for a second and think about it. Okay, I just want to go back to something they mentioned, biological preparedness and classical conditioning. Verywellminded.com again. Kendra Cherry, fact-checked by Sharon Liam M.S. So biological preparedness is the idea that people and animals are inherently inclined to form associations between certain stimulus and responses. This concept plays an important role in learning, particularly in understanding classical conditioning. Some associations form easily because we are predisposed to form such connections, while other associations are much more difficult to form because we are not naturally predisposed to form them. For example, it has been suggested that biological preparedness explains why certain type of phobias tend to form more easily. We tend to develop a fear of things that may pose a threat to our survival, such as heights, spiders, snakes, those who learn to fear such dangers more readily. We're more likely to survive and reproduce. Biological preparedness working with classical conditioning. One great example of biological preparedness is to work classical conditioning process development of taste aversion. So uh, I'll skip the rest of that. It relates to that. Uh, and again, I'm going to connect back how this relates to training and action relaxation training. I'm just sort of setting it up because you need to absorb this a little bit. Now, what is operant conditioning and how does it work? This is another one from Very Well, also by Kendra Terry, medically reviewed by David Sussman, Ph.D. Operant conditioning, sometimes referred to as instrumental conditioning, is a method of learning that employs rewards and punishments for behavior. Through operant conditioning, an association is made between a behavior and a consequence, whether negative or positive, for that behavior. It gets a little more confusing than that, but yeah. For example, when lab rats press a lever with the green light on, they receive a food pellet as a reward. When they press the lever when a red light is on, they receive a mild electric shock. As a result, they learn to press the lever when the green light is on and avoid the red light. But operant conditioning is not just something that takes place in the experimental setting. While training lab animals, it also plays a powerful role in everyday learning. Reinforcement and punishment take place at a natural setting all the time, as well as in a more structured setting, such as a classroom or therapy. And then they have a little picture of that situation. The history of operant conditioning. Operant conditioning was first described by behaviorist B.F. Skinner, which is why you may occasionally hear it referred to as Skinnerian conditioning. 
as behaviorist Skinner believed that it was not only really necessary to look at internal thoughts and motivations in order to explain behavior. Instead, he suggested we should look only at the external observable causes of behavior, human behavior. Through the first part of the 20th century, behaviorism became a major force within psychology. The idea John B. Watson dominated the school of thought early on. Watson focused on the principle of classical conditioning, once famously suggesting that he could take any person regardless of their background and train them to be anything he chose. Early behaviorists focused on the interest on associated learning. Skinner was more interested in how the consequence of people's actions influenced their behavior. Skinner used the term operant to refer to any act of behavior that operates upon the environment to generate consequence. Skinner's theory explained how we acquire the range of learned behaviors we exhibit every day. His theory was heavily influenced in the work of psychologist Edward Thorndale, Thorndike, who had proposed what he called law of effect. According to these principles, actions that are followed by desirable outcomes are more likely to repeat while those followed by undesirable outcomes are less likely to be repeated. Operant conditioning relies on a fairly simple premise. Actions that are followed by reinforcements will be strengthened and more likely to occur again in the future. If you tell a funny story in class and everybody laughs, you will probably be more likely to tell that story again in the future. If you raise your hand to ask a question and your teacher praises your polite behavior, you will be more likely to raise your hand the next time you have a question or comment. Because the behavior was followed by a reinforcement or a desirable outcome, the preceding action is strengthened. By the way, it was positive because something was given. Again, it gets a little confusing. It's not necessarily negative. It's like add or subtract. Conversely, actions that result in the punishment or undesirable consequences will be weakened and less likely to occur again in the future. If you tell the same story again in another class but nobody laughs, you'll less likely be to repeat the story again in the future. If you shout out an answer in class, you and your teacher scold you, then you might be less likely to interrupt class again. Or you might continue because you get the attention. It's not so simple. Types of behavior. Skinner distinguished between two types of different behaviors. Respondent behaviors are those that occur automatically and reflexively, such as pulling your hand back from a hot stove or jerking. When the doctor taps your knee, you don't have to learn these behaviors. They simply occur automatically. And I'll connect to that later as to why that is when I talk about the classical Coleman scale. Operant behaviors, on the other hand, are those under conscious control. Some may occur spontaneously and others purposely, but it is consequences of these actions that then influence whether or not they occur again in the future. Our actions on the environment and the consequences of that action make up an important part of the learning process which I'll also get into later. While classical conditioning could account for respondents' behaviors, Skinner realized that it could not account for a great deal of learning instead. Skinner suggests that operant conditioning held far greater importance. Skinner invented different devices his boyhood, during his boyhood, and he put these skills to work during his studies on operant conditioning. He created a device known as an operant conditioning chamber, often referred to as a Skinner box. The chamber could hold a small animal, such as a rat or pigeon. The box also contained a bar or key that the animal could press in order to receive a reward. In order to track a response, Skinner also developed a device known as a cumulative recorder. The device recorded responses as an upward movement of the line so that the response rates could be read by looking at the slope of the line. Components of operant conditioning. There are 
several keys of concepts of operant conditioning. Reinforcement in operant conditioning. Reinforcement is any event or stimulus that strengthens or increases a behavior. It follows. There are two types of reinforcers. In both these cases, the reinforcers, the behavior increases. Positive reinforcements are favorable events or outcomes that are presented after the behavior. In a positive reinforcement situation, a response or behavior is strengthened by the addition of praise or direct reward. If you do a good job at work, your manager gives you a bonus. That bonus is positive reinforcement, so giving you something good. Negative reinforcement involves removal of an unfavorable event or outcomes after the display of behavior. So these are reinforcements, by the way, positive things. In these situations, a response is strengthened by removing unpleasant con something considered unpleasant. For example, if your child starts to scream in the middle of a restaurant but stops once you hand them a treat, your actions led to the removal of an unpleasant condition negatively in reinforcement. Your behavior, not your child's. Funny how that works. It's the opposite of what you think there, but it's funny. I'm giving you something to, uh, reinforcing it to get you to stop. And that's carrying a bad behavior in the child, by the way. Punishment in operant conditioning. Punishment is the presentation of an adverse or outcome that causes decrease in the behavior it follows. There are two kinds of punishments. In both these cases, the behavior decreases positive punishment, sometimes referred to as a punishment by application, presents an unfavorable event or outcome in order to weaken the response. Spanking for misbehavior is an example, so adding something. Negative punishment, also known as punishment by removal, occurs when you take something favorable away is removed after a behavior occurs. Taking away a child's video game following a misbehavior is an example of this kind of punishment. So just so you know, these things work, whether they're moral or not, they do work though they have other consequences that affect the nervous system, which will talk. If you do it wrong, um, such as uh, beating a child, it screws up the nervous system in a bad way. So reinforcement schedules. Reinforcement is not necessarily a straightforward process, and there are a number of factors that can influence how quickly and how well new things are learned. Skinner found that when and how often behaviors were reinforced played a role in the speed and strength of acquisition. In other words, the timing and frequency of reinforcement influenced how new behaviors were learned and how old behaviors were modified. Skinner identified several different schedules to reinforce that impact the operant conditioning process. 1. Continuous reinforcement. Involved delivering and reinforcement every time a response occurs. Learning tends to occur relatively quickly, yet the response rate is quite low. Extinction also occurs very quickly and reinforces is halted. I'm just going to pause it there. Huberman, as I mentioned, has gone into in depth, and fixed schedules are actually the least successful. If people predict the outcome, your results are not great. But when the outcome is random and unknown, people's behaviors actually go better. It's to do with how the brain rewards mechanism uh, works. Again, look up Huberman stuff. I forgot which thing uh, to do with learning. Uh, since Skinner, things have evolved quite extensively. Anyways, back to this article. Two, fixed ratio schedules are a type of partial reinforcement. Responses are reinforced only after a specific number of responses have occurred. This typically leads to a fairly steady response rate. Three, fixed interval schedules are another form of partial reinforcement. Reinforcement occurs only after a certain interval has time has elapsed. Response rates remain fairly steady and start 
to increase as the reinforcement time draws near, but slow immediately after reinforcement has been delivered. Variable ratio schedules are also a type of partial reinforcement that involves reinforcement behaviors after a varied number of responses. This leads to both high response rate and slow extinction rate C. Variable five variable intervals schedules are the final form partial reinforcement Skinner describes. This schedule involves delivering reinforcement after a variable amount of time has elapsed. This is also tends to lead to a fast response rate and slow extinction rate. I'm just going to add something in here. This is why giving people a gold star after everything is stupid and 90 children created millennials, which have created a disaster of ideological nonsense. Give me a reward now. No, screw you. Anyways, examples of operant conditioning. We can find examples of operant conditioning in, at work all around us. Condi consider the case of children completing homework to earn a reward from a parent or teacher or employees finishing projects to receive praise or promotion. More examples of operant conditioning in acts include after performing a community theater play, you receive applause from the audience. This is a positive reinforcement inspiring you to try to come to for more performance rules. You train your dog to fetch by offering him praise and pat him on the head whenever he performs correctly. This is another positive reinforcement. A professor tells a student that if they have perfect attendance all semester, then they do not have to take final comprehensive exam by removing an unpleasant stimulus, the final test which is ridiculous, but whatever. Students are negatively reinforced to attend the class. If you fail to hand in a project on time, your boss becomes angry and berates you, your performance in front of your coworkers. This is, acts as a positive punisher, making it less likely you will finish your project on time in the future. A teen, teen girl does not clean up her room as she was asked, so her parents take away her phone for the rest of the day. Have fun doing that. This is an uh, example of the negative punishment in risk positive stimulus is taken away. I think my kids are not getting smartphones for a while. When I have kids. Anyways, in some of these examples, the promise of possibility of rewards causes an increase in behavior. Operant conditioning can also be used to decrease the behavior very via the removal of a desirable outcome or application of negative outcome. For example, a child may be told they will lose recess privileges if they talk out of turn in class this potential for a punishment may lead to the decrease in disruptive behaviors. A word from the very well. While behaviorism may have lost much of its dominance held in the, during the early part of the 20th century, operant conditioning remains an important and often used tool in learning behavior and modification process. Sometimes natural consequences lead to changes in our behavior in other instances. Rewards and punishments may be consequently doled out in order to create changes. Operant conditioning in something you may immediately recognize in your own life whether it is in your approach to teaching your children good behavior or training a family dog or hell adults even remember that this type of learning takes time considering the type of reinforcement or punishment that may work best for each individual situation which is why it's difficult so that's that um so again why um behaviorism has fallen out is because the more we understand the human body and neurons everything i'll get into that afterwards again huberman you take the methodology of operant or classical conditioning while understanding biology behind it and now we get nature and nurture and we can do stuff so I, the reason i brought that in now is because it is kind of dense and i want you now to take a thought take a pause again and think operant conditioning in my life in my training and how has this affected my actions versus reactions so hit pause and think for a second
Okay, so I just want to go back to some things that I was talking about in the part one action versus reaction. So I did talk about slow twitch versus fast twitch. And I'm going to read an article I found on healthline.com. Flexing slow twitch muscle fibers. And this is medically reviewed by Daniel Bovins, MS, Nassim, CPT, Level 3, blah, 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 blah. Written by Noreen Iftikar, MD. Too many acronyms there. So, most muscles are made up of two kinds of muscle fibers that help you move your body. Slow twitch muscle fibers, which move more slowly, but help keep you moving longer. Fast twitch muscle fibers, which help you move faster, but for shorter periods. Twitch refers to the contradiction, contraction, sorry, or how quickly and often muscles move. Slow twitch muscle fibers are all about endurance or long-lasting energy, and compromising fast twitch muscle fibers give you sudden bursts of energy. Slow twitch versus fast twitch muscle fiber. What are slow twitch muscle fiber? Let's take a closer look at ways slow twitch muscles differ from fast twitch muscles. Type 1 and type 2 muscle fibers. Your body normally uses slow twitch muscle fibers to power muscles first. Fast twitch muscle fibers are mainly only used when the body needs to make sudden, more powerful movement. Energy use. Slow twitch muscles use energy slowly and fairly evenly to make it long-lasting time. This affects them to contradict work for a long time without running out of power. Fast twitch muscles use up a lot of energy very quickly, then get tired and need a break. Intensity and duration. Slow twitch muscle fibers power low intensity activities. This is because they need a steady and even supply energy. In comparison with fast twitch muscle fibers, work when you need big bursts of energy. Blood vessels. Muscles with more slow twitch muscle fibers have more blood vessels. This is because they need a good and constant supply of blood oxygen and to let them work for a long time without getting tired. Fast twitch muscle fibers don't need as much blood because they make their own quick source of energy. Oxygen needs. Slow twitch muscle fibers use an aerobic energy system. This means they run on oxygen. Fast twitch muscles mainly run on an energy system that doesn't need oxygen. This is called anaerobic energy system. Appearance. The bigger blood supply and slow twitch muscle fibers can make them look redder or darker. On the other hand, muscles that have much more fast twitch mu muscle fibers look lighter because they have less blood. Maybe that's light and dark meat. I'm just saying. That may or may not be true. But it follows a logical conclusion, I suppose. The visual difference, think slow twitch muscles are plugged into the heart. On the other hand, fast twitch mainly run on a battery. Which are slow twitch muscles? Most of the muscles in your body have more than one kind of muscle fiber, but some muscles have more slow twitch muscle fibers because they have to do the job for a long time. For example, the muscles in the back of your lower legs of your muscles in the back are mostly made of a slow twitch muscle fibers. This is because they have to help you stand and hold your posture for a long period of time. Fast twitch muscle fibers wouldn't be able to do this because they can, can't keep working out for long. Muscles that need to speed rather than endurance will have fast twitch muscle fibers. For example, the muscles on your eyelids that help blink are all fast twitch. Types of activities that use slow twitch muscles. Your slow twitch muscle fibers are working harder whenever you're doing an activity or exercise that needs muscles to work or even stay still for a long time. These include sitting up, standing, 
wick walking, slow jog, running in a marathon, biking, swimming laps, rowing, many yoga positions, some Pilates. Types of fast twitch muscle activities. Fast twitch muscle fibers are working with more if you're doing high impact like running, sprinting, jumping, boxing, skipping rope, lifting weights. You can only do this for a relatively short time. Pause. By the way, Krav Maga. And uh, combat sports, you really need to work fast twitch muscles. And if you don't naturally have a lot of fast twitch muscles, well, it's going to take a lot of training to build that out. And you still might not be as good as someone who naturally has a lot of fast twitch muscles. Welcome to life. There are disparities between people. That there's nothing you can do about to a degree. So deal with it. Anyways, continue. Can muscle fibers type change? Most people are born with about the same amount of slow twitch and fast twitch muscle fibers in their body. Some may be born with more of one, which might make them better at certain sports. See, for example, if you naturally have more slow twitch muscle fibers, you might be better at long distance running. This is rare and more research is needed on this. If you train hard enough in one sport, you may change the muscle fibers. So again, lots of training needed. For example, if you're a marathon runner and train for a long time, some of your slow twitch muscle fibers will grow longer and gives you longer leaner muscles. Similarly, in the lift weights or sprint a lot, you may have fast twitch muscle fibers, which will grow big. This builds muscle. This is why, by the way, lifting weights goes very well with um, uh, training for combat sports. The takeaway, slow twitch muscle fibers help you move or stay longer. The need to rich blood supply because they are use oxygen for energy. This is why slow twitch muscle fibers are often called red muscles. Fast twitch muscle fibers help you move when you need sudden and times reflexive movements like hopping, sprinting, and blinking your eyes. Some muscles, like those in the back, have more slow twitch muscle fibers because it tirelessly help you stand and sit up. So an example is if you've ever met someone who did wrestling when they were young, they have so much fast twitch muscle, explosive energy. It's unbelievable. Um, compared to, say, jiu-jitsu, especially if you start later in life, you're, like, slower and you explode and you have to learn to stall out the wrestlers because it's exhausting. Um, so understanding fast and slow twitch muscles, what you naturally are gifted with and what you need to build and work on will be very important in speeding up your action versus reaction time. Of course, if you have very, very high level of fast twitch muscle, either naturally or through training, you will have much better reaction time in self-defense situations. If you are paying attention, of course. Uh, if not, then you'll be slow, right? You can build it, as it said. It'll take more work if you're not naturally gifted with, say, fast twitch muscles. You do need endurance, of course. That's why I take a much more balanced approach, right? At my higher levels, I require you to start being able to run 2 or 5K because endurance is important for more complicated uh, self-defense situations. You might have to run because if you can't run, you need to fight. So that's where you need the fast twitch muscles. I also talked about something, adrenaline jumps, uh, dumps in the initial one. And what that is, is you, you hype yourself up and then it, your adrenaline dumps and you get exhausted and tired and it's a problem. So uh, for self-defense and action versus reaction, it's really important because if you feel yourself getting overworked too quick by the stimulus, the threat, and you're, you're freaking out, that's where you can hit the fight, flight, freeze, which I'll just remind you about afterwards. And um, if you go into black, mental color code stage black, see the series on that. Um, so you need to understand that. Now, if you're not someone who gets the adrenaline dump quickly, then that's good. Those people are do very good at calming people down, de-escalation, right, in the stages of self-defense. Now, I just found some articles on, on this uh, 
from some martial arts place just to sort of talk about it. So this one is from bjjweekly.com, Managing Adrenaline Dumps. Uh, this was written by Bill Thomas, and I believe it is seen in issue 35. And again, this is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu approach, but it applies to all of it. So Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is an individual sport, although there are teams, schools, and associations. At the end of the day, your training partners can't fight for you. At a competition, once you step onto the mat, it's just you and you alone in the spotlight. Everyone reacts a little bit differently. But for me, as I walked out the gym and goes quiet, I feel slightly disconnected from the world, like I'm watching my body from the outside. Every sound is muffed and slow. I feel my heartbeat in my ears and my hands start to sweat. My legs get very tight, like overwhelmed springs ready to explode on command. My throat swells a little bit and I can't really talk. The muscles in my shoulders and neck get a little twitchy and my arms tingle. It is an adrenaline dump. Nature's way of preparing my body for a fight or flight. And I'll expand on that again after. And it can be very difficult to control or deal with. The primal nature of grappling competition, after all, we literally are getting ready to choke someone unconscious, amplifies the body's reaction. My hands are literally twitching a little bit as I type this, just visualizing the moment before a match. It's like a stimulus. He's thinking about it, and it's stimulating the response. What kind of conditioning is that? Adrenaline is a double-edged sword. While it makes us stronger, faster, and more aware, it also impairs our critical thinking and saps our endurance. Its purpose is to give us 60 seconds of superhuman attack strength or speed to run and hide. A six-minute grappling match is outside the scope of Adrenaline's original design. Specifications. I came to BJJ from wrestling. As a wrestling coach, I've seen a lot of different reactions to Adrenaline dumps, from crying to manic laughter to puking to freezing up and the classic gassing out in 30 seconds into a match. The gassing out was what really started me thinking about what was happening. I knew the kids were in good cardio condition. There was no reason they should be getting tired in a 30 second. But no matter what, how many sets of stairs we did or how intense our drilling was, we still had just to gas out in competition. I also saw a lot of mentally tough kids, even at high school level, just lose it and start bawling their eyes out. What the heck was going on? I don't have scientific chops to explain this complicated chemical rea chain reaction, but I can tell you how I dealt with it as a coach. The first thing is to help kids recognize, or adults, at an intellectual level that they are going to have some sort of physiological reaction at the moment of competition. Just being aware of that and accepting it will help when the moment arrives. I would talk to them about great detail about what they might feel and what make them understand that it was perfectly normal and that everyone, their competition included, felt something similar. Now, instead of wondering what the heck was going on, they could recognize, oh, this is an adrenaline dump starting and bring some rationality back to the table. The next thing we would do is help them recognize that they really aren't in a life or death situation. But you could be. As long as the body doesn't know the difference, then you're fine, right? Sure, some people get hurt at wrestling or grappling competitions, but it's rarely serious and almost never fatal. You are most likely going to walk off the mat with no serious injuries, and any kid who spent more than a couple of months in a wrestling practice wasn't going to be afraid of a little pain. But adrenaline is a fear-based reaction, and so if we are going to die, we aren't going to die, and we aren't afraid of physical pain, where exactly is the fear coming from? The biggest source of fear is from our ego. 
In wrestling and BJJ, there is no excuse for the outcome of a match. There is no teammate who didn't do his job, no coach who is calling wrong play. We can try to blame a referee, but we also have the power to take a decision away from referee finishing by the fight so that it's hollow excuse. We can't even say our opponent is bigger, stronger, or more skilled in a competition with weight classes and skill division. With no excuse left, we have to take the full responsibility for the results of match in our own shoulders. Either we are better than our opponent or they were better than us. This is tough medicine to swallow and our ego fears taking it. So I'm just going to leave it there and not read the rest. But that's a little talking about how it affects your performance. And so how that can uh, deal with it is um, how it affects your action versus reaction. Because if you're having an adrenaline dump and you can't handle it. So there's many ways beyond what he said is consciously you need to be aware in tune with your body. So, you know, the way I approach that is you need to be aware of your mental awareness color code. If you're freaking out and going to black, going into freeze, which again, I'll break down in a sec, you're going to have a problem with action. You're going to be slow. If you don't understand, if you have low cardio or low anaerobic systems and you have low uh, aerobic or anaerobic, like you're not very well trained, you're out of shape, that adrenaline dump is going to screw you and dramatically slow down your action versus reaction. So you need to think about these things. Now, Krav Maga, what Krav Maga does specifically through both operant and classical conditioning, we put you under duress to get your body used to the adrenaline dumps in training and used to uh, not knowing what's going on and when things are going to change. And then it becomes just sort of a normal thing so that your body isn't as easily overwhelmed. Now, competition is, of course, a different environment and will change, but we're trying to tra train your nervous system not to freak out as much so that you can actually bring it back to that sort of forefront prefrontal cortex brain and make a conscious, smart decision, assuming you have the training, etc., which we'll get into later. So understanding adrenaline dumps can and, and where your body is at at any given point will also dramatically affect how fast you can act or react. Now, as I said multiple times, fight, fight, or please, I'm just going to put the audio from the principal section. So here is a better explanation again of fight flight or freeze and there is also by the way uh, a, a podcast i believe on this in more depth but this is just a quick one because i don't want to go totally crazy on this fight flight or freeze when encountering a threat humans typically have one of two instinctual reactions with an occasional third we fight we flee or if we are unlucky we freeze for many, especially untrained individuals, or for those overwhelmed by a threat, this can be subconscious automatic decision. For trained individuals, this response can be honed and controlled at a more conscious level. Whether the decision is a conscious one or not, your brain will do a quick calculation based on your past experience, your skill level, and your conditioning to determine which option is best for the situation at hand. The most important part is often not which decision made, but the speed at which the final decision is reached, supported by whether or not you can commit to it. Strike fast, but run faster. Unknown. The following is an excerpt from a previous article that we wrote. Click on link. The flight or flight response refers to the physiological reaction that occurs when a person is placed in a threatening situation. 
fight or flight simply describes the two basic options that are instantaneously weighed in order to resolve the dangerous situation being presented by either making a quick escape or fighting back. The physiological process of this response begins with one of sev or several of the five senses, typically vision. A person will see threatening stimuli, such as a person or animal. The stimuli is then sent as a signal, via the optic nerve, to the brain. The threat signal is usually processed in the amygdala, known as the fear center, which sends signals to the hypothalamus, which in turn activates the nervous system. Another signal then stimulates the sympathetic nervous system, which will send impulses down the spinal column to the adrenal gland, where the hormone epinephrine is released, also known as adrenaline. Epinephrine will cause the heart rate to increase, allowing it to be sent further throughout the body as the heart beats faster. At some time, the stress hormone will signal the liver to release glucose, which will then be converted into ATP, which is an energy-carrying molecule used to activate muscles. The heightened level of epinephrine in the body will also activate the lungs, causing the breathing rate to increase in order to the body to take in and utilize more oxygen through dilated blood vessels. The pupils in the eyes will also dilate to take in more light and increase visual acuity. Finally, the dilation occurs in the blood vessels of the ears for increased auditory perception. While the body is activating these defensive measures, it is simultaneously subduing processes deemed unnecessary during a dangerous situation, such as digestion, in order to free up energy for fighting or effectively a hasty retreat. The elevated levels of epinephrine and increased activation of these bodily processes will increase body heat, which warms up your muscles in seconds as the mind registers a threat. Psychologically, the combination of an increased heart rate, sweating, and the explosion of energy in the muscles creates a sense of acute awareness of the current situation and the ability to act quickly. While this illustrates the case in which the entire process runs smoothly, you all may also be aware of the case in which it fails, known as Condition Black. Condition Black is also referred to as a non-functional freezing, locking up during a dangerous situation, preventing the individual from fleeing or fighting. Cognitively, a sense of increased aggression will be associated with the fight response and combination of fear and anxiety for flight. While a sense of fear and anxiety is commonly associated with freezing, as well, it is often includes physical sensations of stiffness. During the freeze response, the parasympathetic nervous system dumps large amounts of hormones into the body. The same hormones that return to the body is relaxed state after a fight. The sudden increase of recovery hormones during a dangerous situation will have the opposite effect of the desired fight-or-flight response, mixing panic with an inability to act quickly although freezing can be useful in situations in which a person must remain still in order to hide from an attacker. It can be detrimental when faced with an attacker head-on. In Krav Maga, we accept these natural reactions and work with them. We have a decision to make. If we are following the proper stages of self-defense, then we will choose flight as avoidance is the first choice when we have it, and it is appropriate for civilians. It is usually for those who jobs require them to stay, will not. Or, if we cannot avoid the fight and we cannot de-escalate the situation, we fight depending on the scenario and how quickly you realize the fight is unavoidable. 
you will either act preemptively and strike first or react defensively to the incoming attack. The freeze reaction is a double-edged sword. In some situations, the correct tactical response to stop moving. In others, it renders you defenseless. Example 1. You are walking in the plains of Africa. You spot something. That something you think is a pair of eyes peering at you from the tall grass. You freeze. This is both to ensure that you identify the target correctly before making a decision and to not activate the predator's response to running. The ability to recognize eyes and face is so ingrained in our biology that our brains have sections dedicated to this task. This is a very primal predatory response. I see face, I decide to flight, fight, flight, or freeze. Remember, these responses threaded throughout our biology as part of our survival instincts. So rather than struggling with them, train them. Example 2. You are a special operator group moving silently through the night. You are still one kilometer from your designated target. A group of teens is up late past the local curfew. You refrain, you freeze, remaining motionless and silent so as not to be spotted. The threat of detection passes and you continue. In both examples, the freeze response offers a tactical advantage, as the threat is present but not active. But what if the eyes of the grass suddenly charged, or the teens turned out to be hostile? In the worst case scenario, the freeze response can become code black, and turn into a catastrophic mental failure preventing you from acting at all. The dreaded non-functional freeze. This is the kind of freeze we hope to avoid. Some individuals are fortunate enough not to have a code black or NFF trigger. Others will only know when it happens. If your brain is prone to code black, hopefully you have made correct life decisions and managed to avoid dangerous or life-threatening situations. If not, you may be in for a world of hurt. One of the most effective ways to avoid code black situation, especially under the threat of violence, is to train. Training is a form of exposure therapy, especially with intensity of Krav Maga. Krav Maga cannot be called Krav Maga if there is never forces you to push yourself physically and mental limits through stress testing. This regular and relatively safe training exposes you to higher levels of mental and physical stress in slowly increasing doses which allows your body to adapt and get used to the stimuli, internal and external. The more you're exposed to the stimuli, the easier you can turn a freeze response from an NFF to a tactical freeze to an action, thus making the correct decision in the moment and avoiding being overwhelmed by real-world threats. Under the threat of life and death, do you know which response you're most likely to have? The right one could save your life, but the wrong one. So I hope that clarified a little bit about that before we move on to the next one. So how, again, I want you to think about the operant conditioning and the classical conditioning and the nervous system a little bit. And uh, we'll get into this one, which is how do we take these concepts for action and reaction and training and human psychology and train your reflexes and conscious decision making. So this is part two of the series. The Nervous System, Reflexes, and Krav Maga, Part 2, Training Your Reflexes and Conscious Decision-Making. This is the second part of another series about connecting the system of Krav Maga to your nervous system and day-to-day -day life, specifically your nervous system and your reactions. See Part 1 and the previous series, Awareness Color Code, the Nervous System and Mental Health. 
Now that you have a better idea of how your reflexes are affected by your brain, body, and conscious awareness, I can start to discuss how training affects your ability not only to have quick reflexes, but also to make better decisions. This is the part that is heavily studied, meaning lots of research, and yet may still be the self-reflection that we humans are often most resistant to as it takes time, commitment, and often money. Yet, when it comes to performance, it can be the difference between gold and silver or no metal at all. And when it comes to personal safety, self-defense, or job requirements, the difference between life and death. Regardless of your goals, the path to better and quicker decision-making is both practice in the form of iterations and quality regarding how you actually train. I will take a basic learning theory with regards to the development and use a case study in the form of the unfortunate and recent police-related death of Duante Wright. As briefly mentioned in Part 6 of the previous series, there are four stages towards competence in skill development, as generally accepted, and it is harder than you think to achieve Stage 4 in any given skill set. Before I delve into this, I would like to bring up the concept of the 10,000-hour rule, originally popularized in the book Outliers, The Story of Success by Malcolm Gladwell, a great book. In this book, Gladwell looks at many outliers, extremely successful people, who have excelled beyond anyone else. One thing he notes is the amount of time and, of course, energy they put into developing themselves skill-wise or otherwise to being the best. He suggests that it takes up to 10,000 hours to achieve a skill level that would be considered mastery compared to your peers. To give your mind an anchoring point to better understand what this means, let's give it a quantitative reference point and compare it to the standard 40-hour workweek. Working 8 hours a day, 40 hours a week, it would take 4.8 years of continuous work to achieve mastery at your job and the basic skill needed to do it. This, however, is probably not realistic as, let's be honest, most of you probably do 2-4 to four hours of actual work towards that goal. This means, for most, it is probably closer to 10-20 to 20 years to achieve mastery. Of course, this is not an exact science and some people may achieve mastery faster than others for a variety of reasons. One thing is for sure, mastery, at a minimum, takes thousands and thousands of iterations repetitions to be achieved. The more you do, the better you should get. Let's expand on this. I pose the question, why is it some people spend their whole lives doing something but never reach the level they would like? The first reason is that despite the constant barrage of positivity in the self-help improvement world industry, they often forget to discuss the reality of personal limitations in particular, those to do with something you can't control mentally or physically. For example, if you just don't have a lot of fast twitch muscles, no matter how hard you train, you probably will never break a world record sprint time. Add to the, this fact that humans legitimately can only run so fast before our bodies hit their mechanical limit. Period. There are certain realities, positivity just cannot overcome. Sorry. The other reason is related to the quality of iterations, repetitions. Simply doing something over and over again may not increase your skill set if you are not doing it efficiently or effectively. 
The reason why many of the best accomplish what they accomplish and are selected for examination in the book Outliers isn't just the iterations they are doing. In the form of constant driven hard work, it also has a lot to do with the fact they tend to be more efficient in the way they do it. One could refer to the quote often attributed to Vince Lombardi, quote, practice does not make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect, end quote. Okay, so now that I have rambled enough, let's make this more tangible with regards to skill development in martial arts and self-defense. Let's take the example of BJJ schools. It is very clear if you have been around long enough that some schools produce better results more consistently than others, and there are two reasons for this. One, a school run by a champion may simply be attracting those who are highly capable. Two, the coach at the school is an effective coach in developing the skill sets of all students, making them the best they can be in the most efficient way. The latter will usually produce excellent results more consistently for more people than the former. That is because it is based on logic, reason, and science rather than relying on a student's natural talent. The world-famous BJJ coach John Danaher talks about this in the various podcasts he has appeared on to discuss the need for quality repetitions that increase skill rather than repetitions simply for their own sake. All of his podcast's discussions are worth listening to, but in particular, episode 182 on Lex Friedman. Okay, so what does all that have to do with reflexes and your nervous system? Simple, the more skill you have in self-defense, combative, or, well, anything, the faster and more efficiently you can apply those skills, especially under stressful conditions. Remember, if you are a black belt in the gym, you may actually only be a brown or purple belt on the street in the context of BJJ rankings. This is where understanding how the four stages of competence relate to the skill development comes in. The four stages of competence are 1. Unconscious incompetent 2. Conscious incompetent 3. Conscious competent 4. Unconscious competent Let's break these down so you better understand. 1. Unconscious incompetent. This is the point where you have been introduced to a skill. For example, you just learned how to deal with a knife attacker doing an ice pick attack. This means you probably learned the Krav Maga 360 defense. While you know the technique as you were just shown it, your body and brain do not actually understand how to effectively use it. You may even forget many of the details of the technique the moment you walk out of class. The new lesson is put somewhere in the back of your brain and competence in using this technique or skill outside of the context in which you learned it is not well established yet. This is why going to a two-hour self-defense seminar, learning multiple skills, and then saying you know how to defend yourself is now is delusional because you are still very much in the unconscious incompetence stage and are unlikely to be able to use these skills in any practical sense, especially if your nervous system is jacked due to the fight or flight mechanism and the various stages of the color code. Now, in a less dramatic sense, this stage is fairly short and is the period when you just learnt it, as the instructor is trying to explain the technique to you and you either got it and can now practice it or you didn't get it and practice is still not on the table yet. 
If you were not even paying attention for all two hours of said seminar, you were definitely stuck here as you didn't actually learn shit. So pay attention. 2. Conscious Incompetence At this stage, you should understand the basic mechanics of the 360, for example, as in your arm goes here and your foot goes here, etc. You are consciously aware of what you are supposed to do, however, you are aware that you still don't really understand it very much beyond the fundamentals of the technique. The individual may still be able to drill the technique independently without constant correction, but understand that they probably are making mistakes. Depending on the individual's natural skill, they may be able to use the technique in self-defense, albeit very sloppily and possible injury or errors. 3. Conscious Competence At this stage, the individual understands both the mechanics and strategy of the 360 when to use it and when it won't work. They will be able to use it in self-defense, but there is a conscious effort that must be maintained. The individual must be aware that a threat was there, the situation warrants a 360 block, and they are consciously preparing for it. They will be thinking about what they are doing and how to do it while performing the technique in training or in self-defense. 4. Unconscious competence. The individual has at least become an expert in the use of 360, perhaps even mastered it. They can probably even teach it to others well. Under duress, they can use the technique without even thinking about it too much. They may even be surprised they used it and did it well under duress. This is because the nervous system, body, and reflexes all recognize the patterns and executed the technique without thinking too much about it, as the movement was reflexive and unconscious. Clearly, the more you can move towards unconscious competence, the faster your reflexes will be. This is because you have developed the skill so well you don't even really need to think about it. Thinking takes time, which slows down your reaction, giving you less time to reflexively react and more chance of getting hit, or worse. This is encapsulated in Bruce Lee's saying, quote, learn it all, then forget it all, end quote, or learn it till you forget it. This means that self-defense is a skill that needs to be developed. Even if you are naturally gifted with fast twitch muscles to give you a faster general reaction times, you still need to develop the skill beyond the actual technique. This includes developing how to connect the technique to an overall strategic approach appropriate to the situation, ensuring that your nervous system is operating appropriately and not overriding rational reasonable reactions with things like fear or quote running hot. True mastery means developing to the point where it is reflexive but you still have control over your actions and are linking it to everything else. Developing a skill to unconscious competence is only the first step in a journey to allowing your reflexes to be as fast as they can all while making the right decisions and appropriate response. Clearly, it's not just about training, but training consistently and with enough iterations to achieve, at a minimum, unconscious competence. You must remember, however, it's not just what you are learning skill-wise, but how you are learning it. There are two things that you are constantly fighting against with regards to faster reflexes and reactions, time and age. For even if you achieve fast reaction times along with mastery in the chosen skill set, Eventually, your body will not be able to do what it once did. 
but as long as you achieve these goals, you will still stand a good chance with your highest skill, knowledge, and developed skill set against the average would-be attacker. So train your mind, body, and skill set in the most efficient manner so that you can achieve unconscious competence faster than the rest of the pack. There are many ways to do this, but one way is to develop skills based on your own natural body reactions. This is something Krav Maga has developed well. The two primary responses are to run and to create space, flight, or move towards the threat and eliminate the space, fight. These two, however, will be covered in the next posts. In the meantime, consider what was written above and ask yourself, is the way you are currently training just about quantity or is it about quality? And of course, are you putting in the time and energy to develop your skills to the level that you desire? Written by Jonathan Fader. For training online, visit www.utkmu.com. If you're in the Metro Vancouver area, come learn with us in person. Sign up at www.urbantacticskm.com. Support this blog by clicking on the link. Oh, yeah. Hope that made some sense. I just want to uh, define, clarify some things first before I expand on that one. So let's talk about what is a neuron. And this is from the University of Queensland, Australia, Queensland Brain Institute. I'm not going to give you the URL because it's like some crazy educational one. Uh, it just says the brain, brain anatomy to by uh, Dr. Alan Woodrow. So neurons, also called neurons or nerve cells, I don't, I'm trying to emphasize how it's spelled, I don't know. English is my first language though, are the fundamental units of the brain and the nervous system, the cells responsible for receiving sensory input from the external world, for sending motor commands to our muscles, and for transforming and relaying the electrical signals at every step in between. More than that, their interactions define who we are as people. Having said that, our roughly 100 billion neurons do interact closely with other cells, broadly classified as glia. These may actually outnumber neurons, although it's not really known. The creation of neurons in the brain is called neurogenesis. And this can happen even in adults. What does a neuron look like? So you're going to have to look up some anatomy textbook, but anyways, there is, in the link it gives you a picture. Useful analogy is to think of a neuron as a tree. A neuron has three main parts, dendrites, an axon, and a cell body, or soma, which can be represented as the branches, roots, and trunk of a tree. Respectively, a dendrite, tree branches, is what a neuron receives input from other cells. Dendrites' branches move towards their tips, just like three tree branches do, and they eventually have leaf structures, and we call them spines. The axon, or tree root, is the output structure of the neuron. When a neuron wants to talk to another neuron, it sends electrical messaging called action potential through the entire axon. The soma, tree trunk, is where the nucleus lies, where the neuron's DNA is housed, and where po proteins are made to be transported through the axon and dendrites. You really need to see a picture, of course. There are different types of neurons, both in the brain and spiral cord. These are generally divided according to where they originate and they project to and where the neurotransmitters they use, what neurotransmitters they use. Concepts and definitions. Axon, the long structure on which an action potential are generated, transmitting parts of the neuron after initial action potential travels down the axons to cause release of neurotransmitter. 
dendrites, the receiving part of the neuron. Dendrites receive synaptic inputs from axons, with the sum of total of dendritic inputs determining whether the neuron will fire an action potential. Spine. The spine, small protrusion found at the dendrites that are at many synapses, the postsynaptic contact site. Action potential, brief electrical event, typically generated in the axon that signals a neuron as active, and action potential travels through the length. The axon causes release of neurotransmitters into the synapse. The action potential and consequent transmitter release allow the neuron to communicate with other neurons. In other words, neurons are your nervous system, your brain and nervous system. They are literally switches, uh, yes, no, do, yes, no, do this, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Humans are just biological machines. If you know programming code in a higher level beyond we know, you can hypothetically program a human, but we don't know that how to do that yet. It's like asking a rat to study itself, right? So that's just how neurons work, which is the basis of muscle memory, which I'll define. This is from Wikipedia. Muscle memory is a form of procedural memory that involves consolidating a specific motor task into memory through repetition, which has been used synonymously with motor learning. When a movement is repeated over time, a long-term muscle memory is created for the task, eventually allowing it to be performed with little to no conscious effort. This process decreases the need attention to create maximum efficiency with the motor and memory systems muscle memory is found in many everyday activities to become automated improve with practice such as riding a bicycle driving a motor vehicle playing ball sports typing on keyboards entering pins and it goes on so on i won't read the entire article but it's connected to learning etc and you can basically relate that you're not actually training your muscles but you're training your neurons and your nervous system to have the correct action potential responses for the response that you want, right? And getting back to um, the article uh, and, and sort of the learning process and training your nervous system. So you can see the methodology you can use could be operant conditioning or classical conditioning as a method uh, through some training structure or program to develop the behaviors you want. For example, if you have difficulty uh, training something, then you have to figure out do you add negative, use operant conditioning, negative, positive, or you just keep it simple with classical conditioning just to get you to do the response to do it. Now, I'm not saying this is a good one um, because trigger is bad for you, but a common one would be like, hey, I do my workout so that I can get ice cream after. I won't eat my ice cream if I don't do my workout. Um, that would be positive reinforcement. I do the thing, I get rewarded in operant conditioning, right? And an example, though, of uh, sort of a bad response through, say, uh, sort of a classical conditioning would be, actually, it's to do with, like, a phobia. So, for example, if you're unfortunately in an abusive relationship, you're probably going to have a very strong flinch response. So someone flexes their, f pretends like they're going to punch you, and you flinch. That's your response. The stimulus is there showing you're going to punch or initially they would punch you right it's abusive i'm do not do this it's just an example related to uh training responses self-defense and having the undoing phobias right they punch you there's the stimulus then you start to flinch then they just flinch themselves you cover up as a response you've learned the behavior right now um you need to work through the learning process, right? The four stages that I talked about, unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious, conscientious, uh, screwed it up already. One, unconscious 
incompetence. Two, conscious incompetence. Three, conscious competence. And four, unconscious competence. You have to use sort of that 10,000 hour rule through 10,000 efficient training hours to build through those learning stages. Uh, so that's where you can use operant or classical conditioning, but if it's not effective in getting the desired results through some measurable means, then you're going to be very slow to move through uh, those four stages of competence. And it's important to understand because the faster you can get through those stages, the faster your action and reaction will be. If you're in a particular skill set in stage four unconscious competence, then you will have a much faster reaction time. That's the difference between mastery and expertise and novice and you know advanced novice, etc. You're farther down the, the learning scale. Right, so for example, my white belts, you're learning exabelt curriculum. They are probably a conscious incompetence or conscious competence, maybe by the time they get to uh, their yellow. By the time they get to orange, they should be at conscious competence, but they still probably won't be unconscious competence for those white belt techniques until they're blue, you know, green or blue belt, because that's how long it can take. You need the constant reiterations. That's one of the reasons I designed uh, UTKM's program is. You're constantly doing the beginner stuff, no matter what level you are, because it's the most important fundamental stuff that actually works off your nervous system's natural reactions, your, your behavioral uh, natural survival mechanisms. And you need to really drill that to get to the unconscious competence. And then, you know, our novice curriculum uh, is more complicated, and you're probably not going to be unconscious competence even until you're a black belt. That's why they say that black belt is just the beginning, because now you've got your head around it, and then you're drilling to the point where you become conscious competence. And you don't achieve mastery until you're well, well into your black belt, 10, 15, 20 years into your black belt in any martial arts, right? And how you get developed those techniques will, of course, depend on the person. Sometimes classical conditioning is simple and easy. You can develop a drill that requires classical conditioning. You can develop drills that use operant conditioning. Again, I don't believe in praising people all the time. I think that's ridiculous. Um, you need to sort of do random. If someone does, that's why if someone does really good, I'll praise them. And then they're like, oh, that's unexpected. And then they know it's not only is it genuine praise, it's actually random based on their performance. If they're performing really well all the time, then it'll be less random. But then you have to, as the instructor, pull away that positive stimulus so that it becomes random again. And they're not just seeking it as a standard neutral sort of, I'm expecting it, therefore it's no longer a special reward, right? So you have to work your way through it. Again, it's coming back to the 10,000 hour rule as, uh, in, in the book that was discussed in the post. Um, I am blanking right now. Right, Malcolm Gladwell. Right now, again, he does something, which is take the exceptions to the rules and says why they're successful. But they are the exception to the rule. Um, but what doesn't change is the 10,000 hours. So you need to do 10,000 hours. That's full-time like five hours uh, five years almost 40 hours a week of precise uh, efficient well thought out training skills right now in Kramaga we're not always looking for quality because I'm expecting you to fail I need to train your nervous system so remember the technique it's a bit tricky because I'm both trying to develop your technical proficiency but also your nervous system response to prevent it from going uh, to black, as as uh, you can see in the awareness color code, which I did on a previous blog series 
if you want to check it out. It was episode 98. I go through the full awareness color code, so you can check that out. Um, but the thing is, is that you need to, we're training both things, your technical proficiency. So that is slow, conscientious drilling, right? Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. But then I also need to push you to the point of fatigue where you're failing and you're not actually getting in good technical repetitions, but you're able to function and do because I'm actually trying to train your nervous system. So no matter what organization you are, because it very much comes down to that instructor, is you need to realize you are training in Krav Maga, both your action, reaction potential of your nervous system and your technical proficiency. Because what Kramaga got right is realizing, I don't give a shit what you can do in a calm, collected, drilling, how perfect your kata looks. If stressors hit you and you're in a different stimulation environment, I'm no longer in that quiet dojo. I'm in the street. I'm in this. Someone's yelling at you. And you can no longer perform. Those techniques are useless. Now, there is an approach that if I get your skill set, your technical skill set up, to the point of unconscious consciousness, uh, un- unconscious competence, or this fourth stage of competence, then hypothetically, your neurons, your neurological pathways, your action potential will simply know what to do. And you're not even thinking. Now, technically, you're in black. Mentally, if you're just reacting, it means your skill is there, but you're not consciously in control. Now, it achieves the objective of survival. And that's good. Your skill is such a high level. The stimulus, say a punch came in and you didn't even think you just reacted because you're technically so proficient. But then you knock them out and kill them. From a self-defense perspective, that's not great because you could end up in jail now. From a physical self-defense, it's fine. But from a legal and social perspective, so that's why you need to train that nervous system as well so that you're not just letting your neuron potential go. You need the prefrontal cortex to be in a calmer state not allowing your adrenaline dump to screw you, not going into condition black, through your consistent training, you know, hopefully mixing up operant and classical conditioning, doing up various drills, sometimes focusing on both your calm technical proficiency and your not calm uh, neurological development. For both, you need unconscious competence for your neurological development as well as your technical development. So, Coming back again, how I designed the UTKM program in the white belt curriculum, I have two classes. I have defense, which is your technical development, and then your warrior, which is your neurological development. You need both. Uh, too often, people focus on the go hard, go fast, kill, you know, no, uh, what is it? Strike hard, strike fast, no mercy. I probably screwed up. But they're forgetting you need to train the technical development. And often when I, some more experienced students, they come and they get bored and they start uh, going to the next step and jumping to it because they want to go through the whole thing. And I'm like, no, you're partnered with a new person. Slow it down. Do it again. Get your technical proficiency. Boring mentally, but important from a technical perspective, right? If you're developing your competence to the point where you're both having a positive, good, fast, conscious reaction in your prefrontal cortex, as well as a good, fast technical physical reaction your technical proficiency that's where you want to be if and i know people in krav maga who just fucking wail on people just hit them because they've trained their neurological uh or they've trained their their technical development just oh stressor go because aggression aggression over everything 
Aggression works because you're trying to overwhelm their neurological system. But it's a problem if you just like killed someone. You need to take complete control because remember, Krav Maga, while heavily uses aggression as needed when technical proficiency fails, which it can due to adrenaline dumps, due to lack of actual skill, due to bigger, stronger opponent, right? Then the animalistic... Uh, behavioral stuff comes in where I need to show them I'm going to kill them and make it not worth their while, predator versus prey, right? So you need to understand that in your training, you're not only training both, but I need that 10,000 hour rule in both. I need 10,000 hours training my neurological system and 10,000 hours training my technical development of the skill set. So that's why you need to train the techniques as much as possible and only change them as necessary, which does happen in Krav Maga because you change as you need to. But you always come back to simple is best. Even in, say, jiu-jitsu, complicated, I've started really telling, hey, figure out what you want early, get really good at it. What technically techniques you want to do, develop your game, get good at it. If you start mixing it up too much, you might confuse yourself and your reaction time is slower. The better you are technically at what you want to do, faster your reaction time the better that you can maintain a calm mind and adrenaline system and nervous system and biological system, the also faster you can react in many ways because you won't be overwhelmed. And it also helps you make better decisions because you might fast react to one person and then your system's overwhelmed and now you can't strategically think on how to make quick reactions for a continuous bad situation. Uh, so I hope that helped you a little bit understanding that. Now I'm going to get into... The next two, which is really dealing, talking about how sort of your behavioral mechanisms uh, work, uh, your neurological, natural behavioral mechanisms work. And I actually use something called the Glasgow Coma Scale to explain this a little bit. So I'm going to uh, explain uh, the Glasgow Coma Scale first. Uh, so here's an actual website, the org. So the Glasgow, Glasgow Structured Approach to the Assessment of Glasgow Coma Scale. So I just took the Glasgow Coma Scale, by the way, and com used it as how we can talk about it, both as, from, as a useful medical tool for assessing people, um, but also how it applies understanding your body for self-defense. So the Glasgow Coma Scale provides a practical method for assessment impairment of conscience level in response to defined stimuli. There's that word again. Quote, the Glasgow Coma Scale is an integral part of clinical practice and research across the world. The experience gained since it was first described in 1974 has advanced the assessment scale through the development of modern structure approach with improved accuracy, reliability, and communications in its use. Sir Graham Tisdale, Emeritus Professor of Neurosurgery at University of Glasgow. So it has different responses. They're testing stimulus on different things. So eye-opening. If I give you a stimulus, how your eyes respond? Is it spontaneous or to sound, to pressure, or none? Verbal response. Oriented. Are you confused? Words, sounds, or none? So that eye-opening, right? Four, spontaneous. Three, two, sound. Uh, number two, to pressure. And one or zero to that. Verbal response, right? It's giving you a numerical scale. And anyways, then motor response. Obey commands, and then localizing, then normal flexion, then abnormal flexion, then extension, then none. So uh, in my examples, I'm using the motor responses as a, as a main example. Right, and you sort of, these are descending order, right? The higher number is a given to your top one, and then, of course, you 
you uh, add up the numbers and a high number means you're very alert and aware and a low number means you uh, fall into your base neurological responses and if you have no response then there's neurological damage right and the how and then sort of how to record right do it this way the modern structured approach to the assessment of the Glasgow Coma Scale improves accuracy, reliable, and communication. Read instructions below, right? So obviously I'm not going to get into it. If you go to the link, you can see in deep depth how it really works, right? Check, identify any of the factors that might interfere with your assessment. Observe the spontaneous behaviors in any of the three compounds of the GCS. Stimulate verbal and physical stimulate will be needed in the patient without spontaneous behavior. And rate, judge, observe, response against that. So again, if you want to learn more, you just click on the links. They have in-depth on this website of how to use this for medical assessment, but it does actually give you a decent idea on how um, to use this. And I am uh, also going to put a link in the show notes of a video doing also a job explaining this. So you can get a better idea. Again, that it's for medical application and assessing a patient's neurological system. But I'm using the explanation, using this as a, 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 a comparison of how it applies to our training and our nervous system and learning and action versus reaction. So here is part three of reflexes chromaga, specifically dealing with the withdrawing from a stimulus. The Nervous System, Reflexes, and Krav Maga, Part 3, Withdrawing from Stimulus. This is the third part in another series about connecting the system of Krav Maga to your nervous system and day-to-day -day life, specifically your nervous system and your reactions. See Part 1, Part 2, and the previous series on Awareness Color Code, The Nervous System, and Mental Health. Now that you have an idea of how the body and brain work, and how basic skill development function, let's start connecting these ideas to the nervous system for maximum efficiency. One of the basic principles of Krav Maga is to work with the body's natural reactions as much as possible. There are always some exceptions, such as the instinct to post your hand when falling from standing. Do not do that. Defeat your instinct by learning a proper breakfall. But, this is why Krav Maga principles are just that, principles and not hard rules. This means that principles, like using the body's natural responses, apply most of the time for most people in most situations. I would like to connect this Krav Maga principle, as well as training and self-defense strategy, to a concept from the medical field known as the Glasgow Coma Scale. The Glasgow Coma Scale, GCS, is a simple way to assess the state of a person's brain and nervous system following a traumatic incident. With a few simple tests, it assigns points based on eye movement, verbal response, and motor response. Depending on your overall medical professional score, medical professionals are able to establish if you are faking it to get out of work or if you need to be rushed for immediate life-saving surgery. If, for example, you fake slipping on a banana peel at work, pretending you hit your head hard, you better know the scoring system so you can accurately act your way to some nice benefits. I know someone who did this and actually got away with it. Obviously, you shouldn't do this because it's fraud, 
And if you get caught, you may end up end up with a low GCS score after you have a bad run-in with your cellmate, Big Bubba in prison. Okay, so how does a medical neurological test relate to your body and your training? In case it wasn't immediately obvious, it, the connecting factor is your nervous system. As this is not medical science lesson, I will be sticking to the motor response part of the GCS to show you how Krav Maga and sports fighting use these ref reflexes to enhance our ability to defend ourselves and, if necessary, to fight. The motor response scale is established by testing the patient as follows. 1. Obeys commands for two-part movement. 6 points. 2. Purposeful movement in response to painful stimulus above clavicle, 5 points. 3. Withdraws and bends arm at elbow rapidly in response to pain, 4 points. 4. Abnormal elbow flexion in response to pain. Decorative posturing, 3. 5. Elbow extension in response to pain. Decibrate posturing, 2 points. 6. No response, 1 point. This means if you can move your body as per two-part commands given to you, that's right, it's six points for Gryffindor. Of course, if you are that guy who faked a banana peel, then you would want to fake it around five to three points response, which would of course be awarded to Slytherin. Number two, response would be trying to get the thing causing pain, usually tested by applying a trapezial pinch to get it to stop. By pushing it away, this is usually not a severe reaction as a person is still relatively calm. Though if it was an ex coming up behind you to jab you in the ribs, you may not remain calm. In a more practical comparison, in a training or combative perspective, think of this like someone to set up their grips in judo BJJ wrestling. As they go for it, you adjust and attempt to grip fight so they cannot continue. Number three is where you pull away from the pain stimulus in an attempt not to have it again or to further damage. From a self-defense and strategic perspective, this would indicate you're probably in mental code orange and or are implementing a strategy of avoidance. Though the GCS refers to the literal response to actual physical stimulus for the purpose of this comparison, I am making it a little broader. In the sense of what would your nervous system and what would you do as a response to a perceived or real threat, be it painful, potential pain, or literal pain? At this stage, you're probably still able to make very conscious strategic decisions about what to do, and you still have your wits about you. Perhaps you saw that X coming, and you ran away from the emotional pain as a response. Or it is a velociraptor and you run knowing your friend who didn't listen to you about their weight cardio gets eaten first as you sacrifice them for the greater good of your survival. Referential joke from previous post. Or the response could be more literal as you are getting hit or in the process of getting hit your movement response kicks in and you shift away just enough not to take the full impact of the blow so you can move and counter. This example starts to work in the training methodology. If your combat skills are sufficient due to training and you find yourself in a conscious competence or unconscious competence stage, you will start to use footwork and head movement to avoid strikes so that you can either run to safety or start to impose your will. This indicates that similar to the GCS, the individual's nervous system is in a state in which it can still reasonably function both operationally and strategically. 
Though you are clearly in color code red, due to the training and effort, your nervous system is not overwhelmed and you can comfortably or reasonably think and execute your training and techniques without things sliding down the scale. Of course, many of you may have seen professional competitions or street fights where the skill and physical capabilities of a particular fighter are considerably better than their opponent, and that fighter is able to dance around the attacks of the other, avoiding most of the potential hits and rolling away from others that do land. If you are on the other end of this situation, you will increasingly feel more and more helpless as your nervous system slips to the lower levels of the GCS, though you are still very much conscious. Your nervous system and body are starting to panic and move down the scale of operations in order to increase your very survival. This again may very well be a situation where you wish it was a velociraptor, as that way a cooler way to go out than that being made a fool of in a fight you clearly shouldn't have been in in the first place. This is why good training, regardless of style, doesn't just train you to go forward offensively like a meathead, though it is very much necessary, as the next post will explain. As, if you are able to, you should practice proper avoidance in both technique and strategy so that you always come out on top. By working with this natural nervous system mechanism, you can hone it through things like footwork drills, head movement drills, and keeping your body in shape so that you can reasonably execute your plan should you ever need it. Of course, that is until you run into a Mike Tyson-looking mother at which point you are reminded of his famous quote, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. You learn this through experience as they are continuously resetting your ability to execute the Pafa Uda loop over and over and over, like some kind of torturous Doctor Strange time loop, at which point you may actually be experiencing some kind of out-of-body situation just so you can mentally survive. This is probably what is happening if it's that X in the situation, because let's be honest, it's probably akin to being pummeled by Mike Tyson repeatedly until you are begging for mercy, at which point you hope the Velociraptor comes and kills you both. If you find yourself in this situation, then you better hope your brain and nervous system are operating correctly, that you've maintained your body and your training and strategy kicks in, because now, if you are in the street, you have very quickly moved from fight to self-defense. Now your plan is out the window and your own nervous system is changing gears into a more serious survival response. But that, of course, is for the next post, written by Jonathan Fader. For training online, visit www.utkmu.com. If you're in the Metro Vancouver area, come learn with us in person. Sign up at www.urbantacticskm.com. Click support this blog or at the support us page to support this blog and podcast. Okay, so you can see how that connects back to the, uh, the other uh, topics and the other things connected to it, uh, things that I've covered already. So basically, if you're withdrawing from a stimulus, it means that you're paying attention. So I am in mental color code yellow or orange and I'm completely aware of what's going on, and potentially I'm in the higher levels of the, uh, of the learning, right? Uh, unconscious competence or conscious competence, right? And I'm assessing, and I'm not overwhelmed yet, and I'm making decision. They throw a punch, I step back. Hey, I'm going to give you a chance. Let's de-escalate. Um, you are able to respond quicker, or you see things coming, or maybe time has, quote, slowed down because... You see this pattern in your neurons. You're like, I know what's going on, and you react appropriately. You get out of the way. 
right? Avoidance is always best, even in physical conflict. If I'm like, listen, this person is over their head and I don't want to do them physical harm, you know, you'll see often people playing with people on the street. It's not the best idea because it can go sideways. You know, you see a boxer with really good head movement just getting out of the way and saying, you sure you want to do this? Hey, buddy, you sure you want to do this? Moving the head and then they're like, keep going. It's like, okay, bam, knocks the guy out, right? So you want to get away. This also means you're not panicked. Your neurological system has not been overwhelmed. You are probably c more comfortable in this situation. You're not completely like lost and your training is kicking in your mental state is in a good place it's pretty straightforward right to get away right you know if you start boxing or kickboxing or sports they teach you get away first usually before they teach you the blocking because the blocking is a panic response or it's a strategic approach but you know you're taking a hit and blocking goes into the next one so this is pretty pretty straightforward um on how to do this as far as action reaction right it's just explaining the withdrawing stimulus between the action reaction and how it relates to the glasgow coma scale so it's not too complicated and i think it did a good job of explaining that so let's jump in to part four moving towards the stimulus the nervous system reflexes and kramaga part four moving towards stimulus this is the fourth part in a series about connecting the system of Kravaga to your nervous system and day-to-day -day life, specifically your nervous system and your reactions. See part one, two, three, and previous series awareness color code, the nervous system and mental health. Welcome to the end, that is, the end of this series, even though if you're experiencing the later stages of your nervous system getting you to reflexively react you may in fact be in a state of sheer terror as you face that knife-wielding maniac, the Velociraptor, or worse, the X, who for some reason is a reoccurring nightmarish theme in this series. But hey, I have to be dramatic if I want to illustrate the various color code stages while you sit and read, listen. As I reference in the previous post, Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. This means that you can train as much and as hard as you like, refine your skills, toughen your body, and sharpen your mind, but when you run into situations you were not expecting, be it a metaphorical monster of the human or your ex, that will still have your heart pounding, your blood pumping, and your nervous system bouncing between red and black. At this point, you have been exposed to several models used to explain various nervous system reactions and states and how you can better understand them so that you may increase your chances of a positive outcome. The awareness color code, the PAFA and OODA loop, and the Glasgow Coleman scale. Some of you, as often happens, might be saying, but John, I just want to learn to punch people in the face so I'm able to defend myself. To which I reply, patience young Padawan, there is much of the force you do not understand. Also, punching that X may very well land you in jail, and that Velociraptor will just smirk and eat you anyway. Thus, the more you understand yourself and the complexities of self-defense, the better you can handle more situations. Because sometimes something or someone is just so overwhelming that your body and its systems revert into their primal responses 
and you'll be wishing you had listened so that you were able to learn to control it better through more understanding. Now we'll take a look at what happens when you're overwhelmed and are in red, perhaps moving to black. But first, just a reminder, from the previous post, the Glasgow Coma Scale is as follows. The motor response scale is established by testing the patient as follows. 1. Obeys commands for two-part movement, 6 points. 2. Purposefully movement in response to painful stimulus above clavicle, 5 points. 3. Withdraws and bends arm at elbow rapidly in response to pain, 4 points. 4. Abnormal elbow flexion in response to pain, decorative posturing, 3 points. Elbow extension in response to pain, decorative posturing, 2 points. And 6. No response, 1 point. In the last post, I covered the 1 to 3, and now we move into 4. This is basically a panic response to cover up your vitals, head, neck, and core as a last-ditch effort before keeping the important bits intact. Apparently, your body doesn't think your junk is worth protecting, and neither does your ex. This can be witnessed in individuals who are not experienced in violence, as they cover up and turn away in an attempt not to die as a punch comes at them. Of course, if the attacker knows what they are doing, this response can be less than ideal. That being said, with training, professional fighters often use the cover-up instinct to take a hit so that they can give a hit, or to take a break as they change positions, or to bait their opponent to do something. If you are using it on purpose, then it is training built on top of your natural panic instincts, which has moved from reflex to an effective tool. But you must understand that if your immediate response is always to cover and turn away, your best self-defense is to avoid and run, because clearly you have not put in the time to train your reflexes. A shame. I guess you like being raptor food. Okay, but remember that Tyson quote. This is where Kramaga comes in. Your plan and training can be amazing, but if you are not expecting something and you are in white, and you're startled, you may actually find yourself jumping to 5 on the GCS with a reflexive extension. The more trained you are, the more effective it will be. The less trained, then your spastic flailing will simply be a source of amusement as you would be a threat ends you literally and figuratively. It is one thing to cover with 3 or 4 response if it is an empty hand, but it is another if it is a knife because now you have a serious wound since you failed to understand that things can go sideways fast and sometimes the most primal tool is the best. This is actually where professional fighters often get it wrong. Whether it's boxing, kickboxing, wrestling, or BJJ, if you use the wrong reflex due to training, it may just get you killed. For this example, let's be a little bit more on point and finally talk about that knife-wielding maniac. Kramaga recognized that you cannot always run, and you cannot always flight in a traditional sense, squaring off back and forth exchange, fight. But that if you find yourself at the bottom of your reaction scale, then you must attack forward and with absolute aggression to make the attacker stop long enough to get to safety or to stop them as an overall threat. The Kramaga 360 defense, or outside defense as some call it, is a perfect example of this panic response. Unless you are some kind of crazy person, or someone who can slow down time and move with the speed of the flash, if a knife comes towards you, 
there is a very good chance your body will naturally know to throw your hands out in an attempt to keep the blade away from your vitals while sacrificing the clearly not so important limbs. Once you understand this natural response, you can now hone it from a reflex into a useful technique. Keeping good structure in your arms and through training get your nervous system used to operating under stress and panic and then adding in some good old-fashioned aggression as you think of that ex who drove you mad. While we hope you never end up in this situation, people often forget that training for professional fighting is different than many self-defense situations. While professional fighters most likely have an advantage in many self-defense situations, they train for a very different situations, both practically and from a nervous system perspective. How you train will result in how you perform against various stimuli. If you are a Taekwondo, TKD world champion for example, and you always turn sideways to face the opponent, you may find yourself on your ass when a wrestler shoots low and takes your down because you had a bad base for that kind of an attack. The same is true for weapons or self-defense situations. Unless you have achieved true combat mastery, even if you have trained a long time in a style, if your nervous system is indeed panicked, you may still find yourself throwing out your arms, extending towards that weapon, as our nervous systems are designed to do when totally overwhelmed. Though it is likely the design and approach of Kramaga was more one of observation and trial and error, it often found solutions that were in fact heavily based on naturally occurring reactions, by building techniques and strategies around this. From a technical perspective and a training one, it resulted in what is today one of the best self-defense systems in the world. So if you happen to be confronted by a knife-wielding maniac, the velociraptor, or your ex, and are applying your four stages of self-defense while running through the various color code stages and trying to remember your techniques and how to apply them. Remember this, all humans have a head and usually two arms and two legs, and the basics of how we operate are all the same regardless of style. The more you understand how we humans work, including yourself, the more you will be able to defend yourself and learn to walk in peace in all ways, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Written by Jonathan Fader. For training online, visit www.utkmu.com. If you are in the Metro Vancouver area, come learn with us in person. Sign up at www.urbantacticskm.com. Support this blog by clicking on the support this blog link. Okay, so moving towards the stimulus in a traditional sense is I'm flexing outwards. I'm just panicking, right? So the panic response of me like pulling my head back and throwing my arms at the person is actually a bad response for self-defense, but it's a biological mechanism as in I'm trying to get something. So uh, Kramaga and a lot of self-defense systems, like say Tony Blair's spear system, takes these natural reflexes and trains them so we're not trying to fight our deep root and evolved biological responses. We're trying to refine and train them. So take 360, for example. Instead of me just flailing at a knife coming at me and getting my head away and throwing my arms to protect my vitals, I'm creating a good structure with my arm, throwing it towards the threat, creating good body structure and exploding towards them because I understand the nervous system and want to overwhelm them. Right, As the quote said in, in the system, everyone has a plan to get punched in the face. It's the idea is that I'm doing a last-ditch effort to overwhelm them so that their nervous system is reset and I can impose my will if I haven't been incapacitated yet. 
So this is actually what a large percentage of Krav Maga relies on. It's realizing that I can't run. It's failed. I've failed to talk my way out of it, and I need to strike or I'm being panic attack, right? I'm in stage four self-defense. And you also, at all points, need to be aware of your mental health color code, right? And again, both in the assessment of how the neurons work and the neurological pathways work towards damage, you can assess how well are you working, right? Now, in the case of training, if you're in uh, unconscious competence on both neurological levels and in technical proficiency, then um, you're intentionally reacting to go forward towards the stimulus because we've taken our neurological systems and we've trained them to do that in a way that is extremely efficient, trying to overwhelm the opponent so that they have a slow reaction time and they're completely overwhelmed and they can't do anything, right? It takes time to get to the point where you can do that. Eventually, you get to the point where maybe you're just playing with somebody and all of a sudden, I don't know, um, something happens and you're just like, oh, they're down already? Really? Because if you're used to training with people who are skilled or know the reflex of how to react, um, it can uh, create, you know, higher feedback. But when someone doesn't give you those reactions, like, oh, shit, it's happening already. Right. And this comes back to the training a little bit. The the stimulus. So if you, and you have to know how to be a good training partner so that we can develop these neurological systems good so that we're not just giving the incorrect response. I forgot to talk about it earlier, but say, if I know a technique, say 360, I'm bursting in and the person knows it's going to hurt, they start reflexively responding. So there's a stimulus, right? And they're now reacting to retract right away as a means to not get hurt. Is that good or bad? training because in real life a person may stop completely or they may continue and not even notice so you have to be aware and connecting back to um, how you train muscle memory can be a double-edged sword for this stuff you have to remember I'm trying to work with my nervous system I'm also trying to technically develop my skills I'm also trying to get the appropriate neurological proprioceptive feedback from my training partners so that I can develop uh, the ability to deal with random attack patterns that don't follow a set pattern. An example would be actually from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. If your training partners know your game, they know how to react and defend really well. But then you go somewhere else and they have no idea what your game is and you're catching people all the time because they don't know how to recognize the pattern. Maybe nobody at their uh, gym trains that uh, a game and they don't know how to react to it. So when you're training, you really need to deal with a train in a way that you can train your neurological system to react to any stimulus, any attack pattern, and you know the principles of how to respond. So when you're training, you go to a lot of schools, uh, regardless of the martial art, the students know how to react to be a good training partner for that technique so that they can practice that technique. But if you don't also constantly train when things go sideways, so example, my school, defense, you guys should be following the correct patterns so that people can develop technical proficiency and get the correct action re reaction response developed. But in the warrior class, that's where I'm like, hey, don't care what you do, figure it out. Now we're training the other neurological system is you got to learn to respond now. Get a faster action response now. Technique didn't go well, too bad. Figure it out, right? Um, relating to the moving towards, like if you don't know what to do, and you can't run, you got to go in, right? So that's from a strategic perspective, action, reaction, 
right? So let's take 360. I block. They pause. Well, it's a knife. I don't want to get there. I can run. Uh, I block, right? And I'm block, block burst strike, sorry. Block burst strike. They pause. I can run. Block burst strike. They continue to attack. Well, obviously, I didn't disrupt them enough. I need to go forward. I need to go hard and I need to do a better job of disrupting, overwhelm them rapidly. And knowing how to do the difference very much becomes either an unconscious competent or it becomes a conscious competent where I need to think in real time, real quick, make that decision. And thinking slows you down. That's why you need to both train your nervous system for action, for fast response times, so that it doesn't get overwhelmed and go to uh, freeze or mental color code black. And I also need to train my technical proficiency to have faster reaction time. So I don't need to think about the actual technique I can just do. You know, bringing back that example of uh, Krav Maga 360, if I think they're doing an overhead ice pack attack, I go Krav Maga 360, and it's actually a straight line attack, I need to rapidly switch to a vertical sweep. Now, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, you can always go on utkmu.com, get a, a month membership, and check out the techniques so it makes more sense. There's even a video on it somewhere. But you need to be able to have fast reaction time. Now, if you've only learned 360 but not straight line yet, you're not going to know what to do. So you don't have the technical proficiency. Your mind is going to panic. I don't know what to do. But if you understand the principle of, hey, whatever you do, don't get stabbed, your body might simply instinctively push the stimulus away, which is essentially what that you're doing. I'm going to my 360, extending my forearm, blocking forearm 90, 95 degrees. I missed, I go 360, well, I'm going to hit a panic. My nervous system hits panic, and I'm going to push away the stimulus first. And if by extending my arm outward, which is essentially a vertical sweep, see how Kramaga ties into this. Now, if I don't know that and I'm really panicking, my body might just explode forward into it to get it away from me and push them away. So you can actually see in real time, by understanding the Glasgow Coma Scale, where a person's nervous system is at and where their response time is at. If they respond with technical proficiency right away, it means their skill is so high and their unconscious incompetence, faster reaction time. If they sort of explode in, they're still in that panic stage. The reason why that's so important, of course, is in a self-defense scenario, you need to be able to play with all these mechanisms. I need to be able to be technically proficient. I need to make sure my nervous system is not overwhelmed. I need to be able to know when I'm about to get overwhelmed and I need to push away or explode forward. All these biological mechanisms, my training, my nervous system, because I need to be able to do all of them. Because in a real self-defense situation, I have no idea what is going to happen. And even though action is faster than reaction, a lot of self-defense situations, you're in a constant state of reaction because you're in the situation in the first place because you failed to assess and run. You failed to read the situation and de-escalate. You failed to use verbal skills, which I'm not the best at, and you should learn from someone else. But hey, it's a complicated process. So to sum it up, how you get faster reaction time is by training all your systems. You need to train your technical proficiency. You need to train your muscle groups to get fast twitch, appropriate to the, the things that you're doing. You also need to have cardio because if you have cardio, then you can run and you don't have to do that. You need to understand the basic neurological responses so you can work with them and develop good training uh, regimes using classical and operant conditioning and reward systems. Some people, by the way, don't need reward. They just do because the reward is actually the dopamine rush or the positive uh, neurological chemicals 
the neurotransmitters that they get, they, it's an internally motivated person versus other people. A lot of people are externally motivated. I get that ice cream, right? Again, sugar is not good for you. That should not be your word. Um, but you, it's just an easy example to do. Bread is bad for you. Carbs are processed carbs. Processed sugar is bad for you, right? A vegetable is carbohydrate, just so you know. Um, and you need to work with these systems. A good training program will develop all of them. A good training program will help you understand them so that you can teach other people. And a good training program will help you understand your neurological state so you can calm it down. It'll understand that where you need to develop technically so that the end goal is that you get faster reaction times so you can get better decision making. Now, obviously, again, I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not going in-depth into the neurological aspects of how this works. Again, I, Andrew Huberman, if you just keep listening to him, will break down these in various forms of how you can better train yourself and, and, and how you can get better reaction times, if you're whether you're a coach, whether you're training. And this stuff, by the way, actually works towards, as I mentioned at the beginning, mental phobias. If you have PTSD, if you have uh, traumas, that aren't PTSD but are still connected to that. If you have anxiety, if you have depression, all p uh, by the way, lots of students who train self-defense have all these issues, um, which they can be work on when you understand how your nervous system works and you learn to have a faster reaction internally, mental dialogue with yourself so that, hey, I'm getting overwhelmed, I need to calm down. It's all connected. What you can learn from self-defense and martial arts action versus reaction training Understanding your nervous system consciously and unconsciously, understanding how it works, understanding how you can train it, all will give you better responses and faster responses in your training and in your day-to-day -day life. Because remember, self-defense is not just physical. So I hope this helped you understand action versus reaction and training methodology and how to play with that a little better. So thank you for listening. And again, please uh, like this podcast, click like and subscribe on whatever streaming service you're using to listen to it. And of course, if you want to support us, you can go to utkmblog.com, hit support us or any of the other options mentioned at the beginning. Urban Tactics Cam, follow us on Instagram, Urban Tactics Kramaga, Twitter, Urban Tactics Cam, Facebook, Urban Tactics Kramaga, and of course the blog, utkmblog.com, or you can go learn from us online, utkmu.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope this was helpful. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. The Warrior's Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions. <laughs>